Alright, today I'm sitting here with uh, with John Perotti. We were sitting here before I, I, I turned the microphones on, trying to remember when we met each other. Um, back, I think it was either the fall of 2008 or the fall of 2009, uh, when I was starting up the Friendswood Youth Lacrosse Organization. Um, I had met a lot of the football dads, the Broncos, the, the Friendswood Broncos dads, through uh, my work with the Friendswood Little League. And because of those relationships, they allowed me to come to the Friendswood Broncos football games when I was trying to spin up Friendswood Youth Lacrosse and basically go up in the stands at halftime, right, and, and push flyers uh, and also set up a table outside the game so as folks walk by, you know, you could show them what a lacrosse stick was and show them what a lacrosse ball was and, and talk to them about Friendswood Lacrosse. And I, I just remember it so vividly that day. Uh, as I was standing there at my, at my table, uh, John and his son walking up. And what I loved about it was, was the two of you just played, played it straight, just complete ignorance, right? <laughs> what is this? What is this sport of lacrosse, right? <laughs> Butterfly day. <laughs> Explain this to me, right? <laughs> um, and that, So that was the first time I, I met John. Since then, um, he, he's become a good friend, good friend of mine. He, he, he's coached my son for, for, for quite a bit of his career. Um, and, you know, I, I think he's interesting because I think he brings a lot of experience outside of Texas to this discussion. And then I also think since he's been here in Texas, you've spanned, you know, obviously being a parent, right, been a coach, and been an official now. Uh, so yeah. I, I think that's important. And we, we also talked uh, before we got started his experience with uh, the Hylax Hornets, I think, will be interesting, and he'll he'll drill into that. So, um, we'll kick it off. You know, when I, when I talked to Brooks the other day, same thing I said to him was, you know, give me some, you know, your your story and your background leading up to to where you are today. So right now you're officiating here locally. Um, I'm, I'm curious how how you got to where you are. So, man, go, go go back to the beginning. When when and how did you start playing lacrosse? Oh Lord, it was a long, long time ago in a land far away. Uh, I started playing lacrosse when I was five years old back in Dundalk, Maryland, which is a, a little town just on the southeast side of Baltimore. That, uh, you know, our dads either worked with Buckham Steel, General Motors, or down Marine Terminal. Um, yeah, it was city lower middle class. We all, I won't say all of us, but a lot of us lived in the single family homes that were built during World War II that helped uh, house soldiers. They were at uh, Fort Holliburton, which was uh, just on the outskirts of Baltimore. Um, you know, kind of humble beginnings, you know, but we, we didn't live in the biggest house, but we all had a, a car, a truck, and a boat. Uh, we went on our little vacations either down on Chesapeake Bay or if we were fortunate enough to go down to Ocean City, Maryland. Um, very close knit community. And like I said, I started playing when I was five, and I was fortunate my dad played high school lacrosse back in the 40s at Sparrows oh, Point wow. High School. So back then in Baltimore, uh, you had Towson, Sparrows Point, Dunlock High School, and then you have a lot of your local, or a lot of your um, private schools that a lot of folks know about, and the MIAA, Loyola, Gilman, Boys Latin, and those guys are all playing. So it was kind of unique to have a blue-collar high school you know, going in town and playing the Blue Bloods. So my dad played, uh, he played high school uh, lacrosse, soccer. He was also a boxer. He was a Golden Gloves boxer. And he's, in fact, in the Maryland State Hall of Fame for boxing. He's an amateur boxer. So needless to say, growing up, I never back-talked dad. Um, and my, 
brother also played. Uh, you know, so needless to say, when I was born, I had a stick shoved in my hand. Yeah, so there was that, and I've talked about this with a lot of folks, and probably talked about it with you, it's, and that's something that's missing here in Texas is that um, that generational component, right? That dad or that uncle, right, that hands that stick off yeah. to the next generation. We don't have that here, right? And obviously, you know, back in Maryland where you come from. Yeah. Well, I actually, I didn't play with a wooden stick. Uh, I was one of the first generations that played with a plastic stick. But I did play with my dad's wooden stick from his high school days. It had been broken. He epoxied back together. Very cool. And uh, played with it and broke it again and epoxied it back together. Um, so, yeah, with my brother playing, he actually played at Salisbury in college. Um, I started five years old playing for the Dunlop YMCA. Um, and, you know, in, in Baltimore, it was, you know, in the fall, you played lacrosse or soccer. Wintertime, you wrestled. Play basketball, and in the springtime you played lacrosse, and if you weren't a good enough athlete, you played baseball. Um, that's just shout out my baseball buddies. <laughs> um, so yeah, grew up, started five years old playing, uh, you know, playing instructional league. And our program probably had in the in the instructional league age, we probably had 40, 50 kids. So when you say instructional league age, I mean was it was it just a given that? Below the age of ten, or, or, or whatever, it was just instructional rec league, or or, or was well, there something competitive at that age too? Oh yeah, okay. it was competitive right from the get go. Okay. You know, we were five, six year olds played together. Um, then you have six, seven year olds, depending on your skill level. If you were a real good six, six year old, you play with the six and sevens, uh, you know, all the way up until middle school. You played middle school ball, and then after that, you played high school. Um, so yeah, started five years old. Um, I had guys I'm still friends with today. We started playing together at that age, and uh, so it was uh, it was it was it was good experience. And it was funny. I look at the kids today with their equipment, and you know they have all these fancy gear and, and all this stuff. We started off, you know, the first day of lacrosse, we'd go down to the YMCA. We get the one size fits all helmet, the one size glove fits all gloves, and the elbow pads. And the, and the gloves you get, and they would be rock hard. You'd have to get Neatsfoot oil and rub them down and, and get them soft again from the prior season. And God knows what you were getting from who. So all that equipment was from the Y? Oh, yeah. All from the YMCA. Right. Cool. And, um, you know, around town you had, you know, you had Dunlock YMCA. You had the Salvation Army Boys Club. Um, you had the different youth organizations that supplied the equipment and, and supported the teams. And, you know, they did it through various ways, you know, donations. Um or whatever. So we were very fortunate, you know, because I mean, lacrosse has always been known as more of a rich man's game. Right. But in Baltimore, and I know a lot of my old teammates from up in the New York area, it was the same deal. Uh, you know, lacrosse was supported by the community. So the gear was, was supplied, you know, the, the cost of playing was very minimal. You know, which was important. That's, you know, why we had tons of kids playing all the time. Um, yeah, that's something we're missing here too, right? Not, so not only at the high school level, but you push down through the middle school and the youth levels. You know, we're, we're asking these folks to show out six hundred dollar registration fee and another five or six hundred dollars in equipment, and you know, and we, we don't have the critical mass and the density where we could form a league that is a centralized league with centralized fields and can provide that equipment for folks. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely provided for a lot of folks. You know, again, you know, in the area I grew up, you know, we weren't hurting for anything, but if you know, we would have to shell out a hundred dollars for a helmet. And, $60 for gloves and this and that. It would have been tough for a lot of kids to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, started five years old, uh, you know, played in the Dundalk uh, rec program all the way up until I got to high school. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of great coaches. I had my, my first coach played at Lehigh. I had another coach play at Yale. So you're a time All-American. Your youth coaches had that experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the good part about it is we didn't have any dads coaching. You know, all these guys were coaching because they, for the love of the game, they grew up in, you know, a, a, several of the coaches played in that youth organization when they were kids. You know, went off to Navy, went off to Yale, went off to Maryland, played, came back, lived in the community. And, you know, they were young guys. I remember my, my, my one coach, my eighth grade coach, Paul Cattern, played, uh, played at Yale. And he was out of school maybe five or six years. And, um, you know, he coached our eighth grade team, and it was a blast. You know, he, he, he knew how to treat us. He didn't, he didn't beat on us too hard. But I tell you, we learned a lot from him. And, uh, you know, we would go in town and play the, the Gilman seventh, eighth grade team, and the Imperial actually put a beating on him, you know, which was fun. Um, so... But that's, that speaks again to that generational aspect, right? That we just haven't reached critical mass here where, you know, there's folks who go off to school, right? Go play, go get coached, reasonable coaching, legitimate coaching somewhere, and then come back and, and hand that off, right, to the, yeah. to the next group. Right? Yeah, it, it makes a huge difference. Like I said there, you know, Paul, I'm sure, you know, when he was playing youth, he played for somebody who played at Maryland or Hopkins or wherever from the neighborhood. Right. You know, so you have that and you still have it today. I mean, it's huge. You, do, you have some some dads out there coaching, but because of the programs, the way they're set up, and again, a more community program, it's not a, a, a club organization where you have a board who's directing things. I mean, it's set up, you know, as like, well, we lived in Bel Air before we moved, Bel Air, Maryland, before we moved down, it was Bel Air Lacrosse. Um, there wasn't going to be a group of people who came in and decided how things were going right. to be based on what they wanted. It was a community decided how it was. The program was set up. They hired the coaches. They tended not to hire dads. You know, they tell the dads, well, once your kid moves up to the next age group, if you want to coach a younger age group, right. you can. That way there was no daddy ball taking place. Right. Um, and one thing was good because we had all of our coaches that played college across. It was really hard to criticize these guys. You know, and, you know tell us, the coach isn't doing this right, he's not doing that right. right. And, you know, well, this guy's been playing since he's five years old or four years old. You know, played up through college, you know, division, you know, one, two, or three. And, uh, you know, and basically the guys know what they're doing. And so we had great experience right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, which, which was nice. Um, you know, because we played for, you know, people say, oh, it's, you know, old-time lacrosse, blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of stuff they do now is being marketed by some of the, the club programs is their methodology we were doing that stuff back in the right. back in the seventies, right, right. you know. Um, so after that, uh, eighth grade. Jeez, unpopular. Um, so eighth grade, I could have played at uh, in the community high school at Dundalk High School. Um, it was kind of weird. I had a couple couple different opportunities. I also played football. And. My eighth grade football team were state champs. And myself, I was a fullback, the quarterback, the tailback, and the wingback, we were also all good lacrosse players. So we were all recruited by McDonough School to go play there. Now, unlike schools here in Houston, in the SPC, which I guess we'll talk about later, in Maryland at MIAA, they give athletic scholarships. Really? Yep. Just legit, above board? Yep. There's an athletic scholarship to come to my school? Yep. 
Wow. Now, you had to take an entrance exam. You, you, yeah, you had yeah. to have the, the academic qualifications. But um, the four of us, they came after us. They wanted us to go as a backfield to go play for McDonough, which is a pretty good football program. And, of course, they wanted us to play lacrosse. So took the entrance exam. We all four got in. Well, uh, Mama Perotti, she decided that her 13-year-old son wasn't going to have to live on, wasn't going to live on campus across the other side of Baltimore because if you're on scholarship, you had to live on campus. And so myself and actually three of us, the quarterback, me, and the tailback, or the wingback, we ended up going to Archbishop Curley, and our one buddy, the tailback, he went to McDonough. So we got to beat up on him for four years of football. And uh, so I went to Archbishop Curley High School, uh, a Catholic high school in Baltimore, and we played, we played the Gomans, Loyola's, the Boys Latins, McDonough, Severn, um, Martin Spalding, St. Mary's, all those schools, and uh, played them in lacrosse and played them in football. Um, on the football side, we periodically beat the crap out of all of them except for uh, Calvert Hall, which is always a good football school. Um, but on the, uh, the lacrosse side, or, uh, sorry, lacrosse side, we had a tough time with those guys. Football side, we, we beat up on them pretty good. Um, I guess talking about football, one of the highlights of my football career, um, you ever hear of Paul Sarbanes? Sarbanes-Oxley? Yeah, I know from Sarbanes-Oxley for sure. Okay, well, well Paul Sarbanes Sr., um, his son played for Gilman, was a wide receiver. And we are playing him one day over at Gilman School, and we scouted him pretty good. He was, his son was a wide receiver for him when I was a middle linebacker. And uh, we knew they had certain signals they called for, you know, when they tried to audible plays, they'd throw a quick slant and pass. Well, I picked up on what was going on, and they ran a slant and pass to him, and that was the last slant and pass he ran that season after I was able to stick him and uh, knock him in the next week. It was funny, my coach laughed so hard, he said, go, he said, hit him hard enough, you might have turned him into a Republican. <laughs> um, so yeah, I played lacrosse at Archbishop Curley. Now that school, they had some pretty good players come out there. Every year we had three or four guys, sometimes five, would go play Division One, and then we have a slew go play Division Three. I was fortunate enough, uh, my freshman year, actually, um, I was the first freshman in the school's history to make varsity, and it was it was. I guess it kind of, comparing it to Houston, to Baltimore, you know, the schools up there have so much depth in the number of players they have. Now, we had a right. we had a fresh soft team, we had a JV team, and we had a varsity team. So when you came in as a freshman, you were either going to be on fresh soft, or if you're good enough, you're going to be on JV. Well, I was, I got picked to be on JV starting a, uh, in the preseason, and our varsity team is scrimmage Lock Raven High School, which is a county school. Now, up there, to lose to a county school was a sin before God. If you're playing at MIA, which at the time was the MSA, if you would lose to a county school, it was not a good thing. Well, we lost to Lock Raven in a scrimmage on a Saturday. So Sunday, it being a good Catholic school, it was. We practiced on Sundays, too. And so I had JV practice, and I'm, I'm done, and I'm walking up to the locker room, and here comes a varsity for practice. And the coach you know, said, hey, Parati, get your butt over here. Yes, sir. You get your gear on. You got practice. I'm like, what do you mean? I just got done. He goes, now you're on varsity now. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, the guy who was a start increase attackman was a senior. He'd been playing since he was a sophomore, and apparently didn't have a very good game against Lock Raven. Mouthed off at the coach, and the coach went, no problem. We'll replace you. We got a freshman who we think can uh, do a better job. And I started every game as a freshman, and that guy got to watch. 
because of the depth we had on the team, they were able to, you know, they weren't afraid to make changes like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that depth is incredible, right? So, you know, here locally, and, and, and we have this discussion frequently as, as coaches, or it's, it's, it's an issue I bring up. You know, I think maybe we're at a point where, for the health of the sport, we need to be actually cutting boys. Yeah. Which is completely counterintuitive because we're short on numbers, right? And, and people are trying to scratch teams together. But I think there are boys on teams that shouldn't be there, boys taking advantage of that fact, right? And if we bite the bullet and cut some of these kids, right, even without that depth, I think that's progress. I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, you know, looking at that, we, uh, you know, they, they carried, they had a budget for how many kids they could carry on a team in high school. And we had cuts. They had cuts on, you know, for a soft team. And I think that's definitely something down here. You know, we, we carry kids for the sake of carrying them. Try to, you know, you're, you're, you want to have them on a team one. I think sometimes it's, it's uh, selfish because they want the money. Right. Help support the team. Yep. Two, there's always the hope the kid might miraculously turn into a better player than what he is. And, you know, it, it's three, they want to have the numbers. And, they, you know, they want to have a D1 team and a D2 team. And, you know, sometimes that's not always the best because of the, the tightness on the coaching. Right. Quality you have down here. Um, we don't have the, co the quality of coaches we need to yeah. support the teams. So you have kids out there learning bad lessons, and it ends up being more of a stick fight than it ends up being a lacrosse game. But imagine the depth you have to have, to your point, to be cutting boys from a freshman sophomore team. Yeah. Yeah, we would have 40, 50 kids come out for a fresh soft team. Wow. You know, and uh, it was unfortunate because you know they played played middle school ball. <clears throat> and got up to that point, and, and it wasn't just there. You know, it was at the county schools. It was like that everywhere. I mean, they, they had you know, their roster. They would keep 25, you know, 28 kids on a team, and that's the way it was. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I guess you know, down here because it's not a, a school-sponsored sport. Right. And someone's father or mother ends up on the board, and, you know, they, uh, they automatically have a spot on the team because mom or dad has a bit of authority. Right. You, know, you didn't have right. that there. Now, the kid whose place I took, he stayed on a team, and he got to play when we played certain teams, and we were blowing him out, and he got to go back in. And, and to his uh, credit, he stuck with it. You know, did his best. But you know, unfortunately for him, the first game I played uh, in high school, we played Delaney High School, which is a powerhouse county team, and I scored four goals. My very first game. That was the end of that. And huh? So that was that. <laughs> <laughs> that was that for him. Um, so, and you know, it was, it was nice, you know, playing on a team like that with the depth we had. We actually had a guy named John Tucker, who was a two-team, two-time um, player on the U.S. World Team, and made the All-World Team. Um, you know, so I got to play with some guys who were pretty good. Yeah, he uh, he was he was definitely, you know, probably one of the toughest guys I ever knew. He didn't play with any arm pads, any shoulder pads. He wore a helmet and gloves because they made them. And uh, I would see him get beat on his elbows and not flinch a bit. And, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. I just wondered today how his elbows are. You know, he has arthritis or not. Because I guess he, you know, he ought to be around 57 years old and he's got to be catching up with him. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, so, and it was nice in high school. You know, a lot of the guys I got to play against when I was a freshman, I played against, uh, well, let me back up a second. Yeah, before I got to high school, um, my, my summer of my eighth grade year, my brother asked me if I wanted to play summer league with him. Now, he was in college. Actually, he was 
just out of college. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm 13 years old. I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'll give it a crack. Why not? So I played college summer league. And at the time, I was playing midfield. So I go out, and I'm playing this college summer league. And I, I was a fair-sized kid, you know, in eighth grade. I was probably 165 pounds, and uh, I was developing. So I go out to face off, and uh, I line up, and there's a guy uh, about six foot three, legs like tree trunks, all black and hairy legs. And I look up, and it's Steve Stenerson, who's now the president of U.S. Lacrosse, who was an All-American at Carolina. And I remember looking up at him going, you know, saying, hi, Mr. Stenerson, how are you? And he looked at me and said, I'm going to kill you, punk. <laughs> and uh, he, it was quite an experience for me, playing against guys like that. You know, him and, you know, playing against some of these guys who, again, were on the U.S. world team, you know, in these summer leagues you play in. It was, uh, it was a quick learning experience for a young buck. I held my own. I got the crap knocked out because back then it wasn't like it is today. If, you know, if you're going for a ground ball and you got your head down, you know, you're going to be, uh, you can get a trip to the uh, emergency room. It's it's, in, it's an interesting story because when I talked to uh, to Taylor Brooks, he had mentioned how he got a start in the sport, and I think he was in fifth, fifth or sixth grade, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. And same story. His brother was in high school, I yep. think, at the time, and he got you know some special dispensation to the powers that be, right, for the Ironman at the time, and he would go practice with the high school boys. Yeah. Right? And and he said he was the <clears throat> he was the designated picker. To start with, right? Yeah. That's what he did. And, and he earned his stripes just by setting picks, right? Yep. <laughs> I'm sure he got uh, he got hit a few times, too. I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. You know, my brother was playing on a team, and, and he asked if I could play, and they let me play. And, you know, and, and it, like I said, it was one experience. I did okay. You know, I, I got some goals, got some assists. I got knocked in the next week a few times. But to go out there and play with guys you're watching in college who are your heroes, right? you know, and which was a big thing in Maryland, you know, growing up, that the kids down here miss. You know, every Saturday, I was going to watch Hopkins, or Loyola, or Maryland, or UNBC, right. or Towson. You know, one of these schools are going, it depends how the games were, were being played, I'm catching two games. And um, I used to go to so many Hopkins games, and back then they let you back up the goals. So me and my buddy would be behind the goals, you know, backing up, no helmets, no gloves, you know, yeah, well, gloves. You know, and stick, but no homeless, no nothing. And these guys were playing against, you know, we're watching, you know, Hans Rulesberger and Mike O'Neill and, and all these guys. And um, actually, uh, a couple games, Coach Ciccaroni, if they were up, you know, blowing somebody out, he let us go in the locker room. Really? With them at halftime. Wow. And see what was going on, which was really cool. That's awesome. You know, to get to get, go to Homewood Field. And yeah, that experience doesn't exist. No. Not even close. No. Here, right? You get to go watch. Um, some men's pickup game on Saturday afternoon yeah. or something, right? Well, imagine growing up, you know, you went to every single Maryland Hopkins game, you know, every year. Or Maryland Navy. Yeah. You know, or, you know, if who, Syracuse came into town and played Hopkins or, or whoever. You know, so you really got to see a lot of good quality lacrosse. And I guess one of the big benefits of backing up the goals is me and my buddy would take every ball we could. So I had a 55-gallon drum worth of balls at home that uh, my father eventually donated to the local lacrosse program. <laughs> so we were, we were never short of lacrosse balls growing up. Um, so, yeah, I played high school lacrosse at Curley. You know, we were a pretty good team. You know, we, we went to the championship my freshman year, and we lost by a goal. Um, then the other years, we did okay, held our own. And, um, yeah, so it was a good time playing high school lacrosse. 
Uh, and the one good thing when you played there and having all these schools around you, you had my freshman year, we had you know John Tucker, uh, like I mentioned before, played for the U.S. team. Yeah, he's getting recruited by everybody. So we're playing on a Friday, and we got Hopkins coaches there, Navy coaches there, you know, our you know, scouts are there. So you were technically getting looked at from the time you were a freshman or sophomore. And um, not that they would talk to you, you know, because they couldn't back then. It was a lot more stringent. Well, getting, getting a little tighter now with the recruiting. But, you know, you were being watched. So you, if you were a decent player, you are on the radar from an early time. Right. Um, yeah, so that was, that was cool, you know, when you look up the stand and you see those guys. It gave you that little extra oomph, even though you might have been a freshman or a sophomore to go out there. And even in your warm-ups to do as best you can. Yeah, you for know, sure. You were being watched. Um, you know, because, you know, unlike down – you know, down here, and I will talk about high school uh, lacrosse down here a little bit. You know, up there, you know, it, it Curly and, you know, all the schools, you know, everyone's dream was to play college lacrosse for the most part. You know, that's what you just died to do. And you had a stick in your hand all the time. You know, if it was pouring down rain outside, me and my buddies would be down in our basement playing box lacrosse. You know, because we had one side of the basement was set up. We had, you know, a cinder block basement. My father paint goals on the walls. We're playing lacrosse down there, um, and you know, out in the yard at night, to where the neighbors would come out and tell me, "Please go in the house and quit hitting the back, uh, the pitch back." Well, at the time we didn't have a pitch back. My father made one out of one-inch plywood. So you imagine you're 11:30 at night, you're laying there and you're hearing boom, yeah. boom, boom, and you know, brother, my brother and I, we would we beat that thing and we wear it out. And have, you know, about every three months, he had to replace the plywood because we we beat it to death. Um, yeah, so we, we just had that drive. We wanted to play college lacrosse so bad. We did everything we could. You know, playing, we played indoor lacrosse. Um, we played pickup games. My friends and I, yeah, I had eight or nine friends. We all lived within, you know, three or four blocks of each other. We'd go up to the middle school stringing that up and just scrimmage. You know, do one-on-ones. And, yeah, that's you know, something here that, stuff. It, that doesn't exist here. Um, no. Nah. You know, we... I, I try really hard and, 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 and have through my, through my career here in the Houston area to spin up pickup games and support pickup games and provide the infrastructure for pickup games. Yeah, well, I'm going to Friendswood. Yeah, yeah. I, I still tell folks that those two summers in Friendswood, those pickup games we did were the most important things I've ever done. Yeah. Because the, the, the turnout was awesome, right? Yep. And there's just not enough of that, right? Everybody wants a coach and a structure and a scoreboard, right? And, um, there's just not enough of the boys just picking up sticks and going to play them. We would do it. We'd go out there, you know, no coaches, nobody around. And we would go out there and we'd have a blast. Sometimes we'd get in fights with each other when someone would be third, felt they got dirtied up, and we'd get into it and we'd up shake hands and we're back being buddies again. Yeah, yeah. It's like with indoor lacrosse. We were allowed to fight playing indoor lacrosse up there when we were young. You know, you'd go at it and you'd get up, shake hands, put your gear back on, and you're best buddies again. You know, no big deal. Is, do you think that's a function here now? Is that a function of all the parental involvement? And the parental involvement says there has to be structure, there has to be a field, there has to be scoreboards. Because, yeah. Because it, it sounds like what you're describing, there weren't parents involved. That was just the neighborhood kids uh, out. No, there right? were no parents. Parents were working. Our yeah, parents yeah. were Bethlehem Steel or General Motors or whatever. And, and you know, we didn't have Xbox and all that kind of stuff. So we had to do something in the summertime, and that's what we did. And, um, but we did it because we wanted to. We wanted to get better. You know, my father never had to tell me, John, you need to go do wall ball. Right. You know, he never had to tell me, you know, well, maybe you should get together with your buddy, the defenseman, go up there and do one-on-one. We just did it, you know, all the time. And it 
made it so much better because you know we we go okay what are we gonna work on today and we each have our plan what we want to do and um, it also helped us as far as with our stick work because then we could go through stuff that you wouldn't normally do in a game right you know goofing around you know and you know being knuckleheads and, and, and yeah I remember at the uh, at the middle school I'd go out there and you know my father had snuck down there one time and put a couple dots up on the wall for us to aim at and being in there hitting the wall and one of the gym teachers was in there working and wasn't happy about it because all he was hearing was boom 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 so he came out and gave me a bunch of crap and told me I needed to move so I moved down a little bit further where the bell was and I'm so he was hearing bing 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know since I couldn't hit my spot on the wall I didn't even hit the bell <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so so yeah I mean we had I mean yeah, down here, everything spread out a bit more than it was up there. You know, you had the neighborhoods, you know, they were separated by alleys and streets. You know, so it was more close-knit. You know, the school was right up the street. You didn't have to drive to it, depending on somebody right. gets you there. Um, so I think it, it, it made it a lot more conducive to doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a big, I think we talked about it a little, a little bit earlier with respect to leagues, but Houston's so spread out. Yeah. There's, and, and, and there aren't. A lot of kids playing, so there's not that density, right? No. That so in a neighborhood, you know, where you may have had 12, 15, 20 boys in a neighborhood yep. that were willing to go out and play a pickup game. I've never seen a stick in my neighborhood that I'm in right now. Not well. I mean, I drag my little three by out yeah. into the into the cul-de-sac, right, and make my neighbor I shoot. Mean, but you would literally have as a crow flies, you'd have Dunlop's lacrosse program. Three miles away, you had Eastfield. Another three miles from them, you had, you know, Charles Mont. You know, so you had so many, so many kids played that it was, you know, you when you went to when you drove by a field, you saw lacrosse goals everywhere. Yeah, we just don't have that density here, you know. And you know, the thing is, there, you know, you have the density there, but again, you had so many people who played in college and they had yep. children and they wanted their kids to play, and it just, you know, fed on itself. Yeah, I remember with my son and daughter, my, you know, they started playing when they were four. I remember going out and, you know, there's 204-year-old girls. Wow. You know, insane. You know, wow. down here, if you, you get, you know, 10, that's a lot. Yep. You know, so it, uh, you know, just from the tradition of playing up there, you know, you know between Maryland and, uh, you know, I hate to say Long Island, upstate New York, but those three locations, you know, back then were it. Still are today. Um, so anyway, get back. You know, finish up high school, trying to decide where I wanted to go. I got recruited by several schools, and you know, I, I was really getting recruited by Navy and West Point. <clears throat> um, Coach Dell was at West Point, and um, Coach Slaza at Navy. They recruited a bunch of kids out of my high school. In fact, two of them, uh, a guy named uh, Phil Scaniak. And Mike Gubosh both went to the high school I went to. And they went to Navy, had real good careers. In fact, Scaniac just, just retired not long ago as a colonel in the, in the uh, Marine Corps. Oh, wow. And his son, I actually saw him, uh, was it two years ago, three years ago? Well, actually, it was in Ryan's senior year up in, uh, up in Dallas. I'm looking at the roster of uh, ESD, and I see this kid named Scaniac. And I'm looking like, that's, that's can't be. Yeah, it's not And scary. I said they wanted to. ESD dad, I said, hey, he's a Scaniac kid. I said, his dad wouldn't have to be Phil Scaniac. He 
said, yeah. And that's him standing right over there. Like, holy cow, went over and first time I'd seen Phil in probably 25 years. And his son was playing ESD, and now he's actually at the Naval Academy. Oh, wow. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, get recruited, and, <clears throat> you know, my dad, of course, he was looking for the cheapest place to fly. So he's, I was really interested in West Point, and you got to remember, this is back in 1982, and Vietnam was still in everybody's mind. Uh, president Reagan just uh, became president and starting to rebuild the military. And the army was still a mess, and you know my father just pushed me to go to Navy, pushed me to go to Navy. Now, of course, Navy was 45 minutes away versus three-hour ride to West Point. Right. So, um, I'm kind of a smart guy, but I wasn't quite smart enough to get in. So they sent me to prep school, which was probably a good thing. So I went to Naval Academy Prep School, and I learned real quick I have a problem with authority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea of being told to do stuff that was absolutely senseless didn't uh, didn't jive with me. And I remember being up there my, my first couple of days and, you know, they're up there and they got first class from Naval Academy doing a training. They had a couple gunnery sergeants from the Marine Corps. One in particular I'll never forget. He was he was hilarious. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook now. But he's your stereotypical. Had a big old cinder block head, ears sticking out like radar dishes, wearing his, his campaign hat and, you know, getting in your face and he's yelling at you and you're just getting a shower as he's, he's screaming at you. So anyway, my roommate was this guy named Percival from Arkansas who was a recruited basketball player. And this guy was afraid of his own shadow. He's like six foot six, big old boy. And they're just screaming at us. You know, making you do push-ups. They can only make you do 20 push-ups at a time, but you know, that'll be one kid that first class will make you do 20, then the next one will make you do 20, the next one will do 20. So when it's all said and done, you may do 200 push-ups. Right. So we go in a room and this guy is just petrified, crying in his bed. And I'm like, what is wrong with you, man? He goes, I don't like being yelled at. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, doesn't that bother you? I said, these guys ain't got nothing on my father. I said, if I had a battle lacrosse game or football game, I would rather have these guys yelling at me than my old man. I said, because they had to let me get so much sleep, they had to feed me, and they couldn't hit me. I said, the old man could hit me, not feed me, and make, not let me sleep. I said, so this is nothing compared to that. So needless to say, he, he didn't make it too long before he uh, rung the bell and left. But anyway... Like I said, I was up there, you know, I was doing okay in school and all that good stuff, and I, we ended up in, uh, they got the bright idea, they wanted to send us out. Uh, there was a destroyer squadron, reserve squadron, up in Narragansett Bay, the reserves, and they decided they were going to send us out in February. And as I'm sitting out there on the ship on the quarter deck, and we're bobbing up and down like a cork in the North Atlantic, I thought, the hell with this. I'm not really, I don't think I'm cut out for it. So... Not wanting to quit, I'm going to finish my year out. And I said, I, you know, I told my old man, I said, I'm not crazy about it, but you know, we'll see how it ends up. Well, fast forward towards the end of the school year, we played uh, West Point prep. And I had a big game against him. I, I think it went like five and four. I had a big game. And um, a couple of days later, I get a, I'm in the, in the uh, barracks, and someone, you know, hey, Parati, you get a phone call. And I pick up the phone, hey, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. This is Coach Edel from West Point. Hey, Coach, how's it going? He goes, man, you put, a, you put an ass whoop on us the other day. I said, yeah, I had a pretty good game. I said, team did well. And uh, he goes, how you like it there? I said, you want the truth? <laughs> he goes, yeah. I said, you know, I said, it's, I enjoy my teammates and all that stuff. I said, but I'm not too sure if I want to, you know, the military life's going to be for me. He goes, well, what do you think about Maryland? I said, oh, I said, I, I would die right now to go to Maryland. He goes, well, no one knows about this, but I'm going to be taking the Maryland job. 
from even West Point. And he goes, are you interested in coming there? I'm like, well, sign me up, coach. <laughs> so me and two guys from West Point prep were his first recruits. Really? Yeah. That's an awesome guy story. Brian Willard and Guy Riccardi. Yeah, yeah. Were the first recruits to go to Maryland. That's an awesome for, uh, story. For Coach Dell. So um, I got off the phone with him. I called up my dad. I told him I had good news and bad news. And uh, I told him the good news was, you know, I was going to go play for Coach Dell in Maryland. I told him the bad news was, he's going to have to pay a little tuition. <laughs> Because, you know, back then, like it is today, there was no full rides. Right. Uh, or if, if you got one, it was very, very few people got one. You know, because if I think, well, now I think it's 12.6 scholarships. I think back then it might have been 11.5 scholarships. So, so anyway, I, uh, that's where I ended up. I ended up going to Maryland and um, playing lacrosse for Coach Edel. And, you know, it was, uh, I'd say probably back then is when they were first coming out with the LSMs. It was a fairly new concept. I think they'd started maybe two years before. And um, like I say, me and this guy, Kevin Hart, now I was an all-metro linebacker in high school. And kid Kevin Hart played at Polytechnical Institute in Maryland. He was the other all-state linebacker, or all-metro linebacker. Well, we both ended up going to Maryland and played lacrosse. And um, you could say we were probably the, one of the first recruited athletes as opposed to a position player. Because he was a midfielder, I was an attackman. Went down there. Yeah, I had a pretty good fall. You know, I scored a couple goals. I was probably you know teetering between you know fourth and fifth on the depth, depth chart. And um, it was cool then. We, you know, nowadays, I don't think the D one teams play D three schools right. uh, in the fall. But we played them, and then we played Maryland Lacrosse Club and Mount Washington Lacrosse Club. Now Maryland Lacrosse Club, Mount Washington Lacrosse Club, they were all old D one players. Maryland, Virginia, Hopkins. So we were playing an all-star team, basically. These right. two teams were like playing all-star teams. And it was neat. And, you know, we're out there, and, yeah, they're making us play in our sweats, the coaches. And, you know, we're all disciplined. And you see these guys, you know, they go out, they do a midfield run. They come to the sideline, they're smoking a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't doubt a few of them had something else in their water bottles. <laughs> and they're out there in the first half. They would they would be beating us, you know. And But by the time, you know, getting in the second half, we're slowly wearing them down. And we'd end up beating them by a goal or two, you know, by the skin of our teeth, but just because they wore out from smoking all the cigarettes, and they were just out of shape, you know, in the fall. And um, so I had a decent fall, and, you know, I get called in. I'm thinking, hey, not bad. I'll be fourth or fifth on the depth chart come uh, come spring. And uh, Coach Edelli asked me, he goes, you know, what do you think about being a long stick midi? And I go, well, to be honest, Coach, it never crossed my mind. He goes, well, I got I got two guys coming next year. I got one, one attack on six foot four. Kid named Moskis, and I got another guy coming in from New York who are pretty good. I'm like, okay, well, I can put two and two together, so I'm going to go from fourth to seventh on the depth chart. You go, well, no, we do have two guys graduating, but it probably would behoove you to be a LSM force if you want to play. So that spring, I ended up being a long stick midi. So the, you said the position was relatively new. Mm -hmm. So what's the history? I don't know any of this. What's the history behind that position? Yeah, it. Um, I guess they, you know, be honest with you, you're allowed to have five poles on the field back then. I'm sorry, four poles on the field, but people only used them on man down. So someone finally said, well, what the hell? We put an LSM out on the field and we're running through the box. You know, you got to remember also back then, a lot of your substitution took place on horns. Right. You know, when, when there's a, a break into action and stuff right. like that. Well, they, they, they passed where you could change on the fly. And uh, someone came up with that idea. So he had me and... And the kid Kevin, 
from Polly because you know told us both said you, you both you guys hit like freaking you know battering rams we'll make you LSMs and that way you get a chance you run down the field you can shoot and score you get a chance to hit somebody you can uh, you can hit them and <laughs> and uh, so even back then with the with the introduction of the poles at midfield he still understood hey you can still go down the field and shoot and score well right? see what we did we didn't play with a, a six foot pole. I played with four and a half, five foot pole. Really? So it was shorter. Oh yeah, it was shorter. I could still play LSM, play you know, play, play uh, midfield with it. You know, because you didn't need that super long pole. At least we didn't feel we did playing up top, right? Like you do behind. Right. And um, so we played with that. So that way, if we got the ball and went down the field, we could you know still have decent uh, decent stick control. And you know. so the decision to cut the stick down was that was that yours or the yeah. coaching staffs or what was, what was yours? It was ours. Yeah. That's interesting. And pretty much everyone at that at that time did that. Oh, that's interesting. So, Learn some yeah. history. So, so yeah, it, but it was weird though. I would play, uh, I played LSM in the uh, in the spring, but summertime I went back and played tap. Really? Yeah. And which was fun because I got the best of both worlds. And plus, also we played indoor and we played indoor short sticks. Yeah. You know, so still got to go back to what I liked or preferred. Was that through the remainder of your career there? Is that did you continue yeah, to play LSM? LSM? Um, so after that, like all good players in Maryland, we can't get enough. I continued on by playing club lacrosse and, um, you know, which was nice, you know, cause I've seen a little bit of club lacrosse down here in Houston compared to the club lacrosse up there. And, you know, we played to win, but we didn't play to kill each other. Right. You know, cause we all knew we had to, you know, get up and go to work as, you know, as an engineer and accountant or whatever the next day. So, yeah, we played club lacrosse, which was real competitive and, uh, but it was fun and, you know, how was it? How was it organized? I mean, was it? Did it have structure in an organization, or was it just hey, no, a bunch of guys got together and spun up enough teams that we just played each other? No, 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 no. You had the U.S. Uh, Club Lacrosse Association, which was um, you consider your D one level club lacrosse. Right. Then you had the Central Atlantic Lacrosse, which was more your your D two level, what you consider D two. Now, not that you had you had D three players played in the uh, U.S. Club Lacrosse level. Right. You know, but one was a little bit more higher level than the other. Right, right. Um, it was funny, I, uh, you know, talking about that, I don't know if you saw the video, it was out not long ago, someone put on Facebook. It was Maryland Lacrosse Club against Long Island Lacrosse Club. I think that's it was about a 40 second snippet of the game. And um, it was probably the, the, the roughest 40 seconds of lacrosse you've ever seen. Guy from Maryland Lacrosse Club runs down. He just gets hammered by a guy from Long Island Lacrosse Club. They're scrumming for the ball, and a guy from Maryland comes over and T-bones a guy from Long Island. And the ball works its way down the field. Well, finally, it, it, it culminates with a guy from Long Island just getting knocked cold, right? So I flipped that to an officiating buddy of mine down here and said, hey, what do you think about this? You know, the way we used to play back in the day. And he comes back, oh, that's... That's terrible lacrosse. Who are those guys? I've never seen it that bad. You know, these guys are horrible, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, not for nothing, but between those two teams, we probably had maybe half of the players who played on the U.S. world team and probably some Canadians, too. And yeah. I said, that wasn't a norm, but that was just the rest would let you play. Right. And when it started to get a little out of hand, they let you go until, you know, unlike today where they blow the whistle every two seconds. Yeah, there's a body on the ground, and it's whether they saw it or not. 
if you were on the ground, they didn't stop playing until they came to a break and played down the field. You know, they wouldn't stop a fast break if you were bleeding out of your eyes. Yeah. You know, you, you, <laughs> it's just the way it was. Yeah. Um, Let the play finish. <laughs> you know, which, you know, it's, 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 you know, talking about lacrosse back then compared to now, it was rougher. But I think today people have a misconception about how rough it was back then. Because as a player, I learned to look out of my ear holes. You know, and look out of the back of my head. And right. all my time playing, I never got stuck. You know, did it happen? Yeah. Guys got teed up. But they were the ones who would keep their head down going for a ground ball and didn't see what was going on. And our coaches never taught us to go out and hit playing lacrosse. In fact, they taught us to avoid hitting at all costs because it took you out of the play just like it took their player out of the game. Right. Um, you know, and you had you know, different philosophy. You know, in Maryland, we were more finesse. Upstate was more more physical. Long Island was kind of a hybrid of both. But, you know, all in all, we all kind of played the same. Um, and, you know, and with the hitting, you, you had it, but it wasn't, uh, again, not as bad as they make it out to be today. And you also got to wonder, you know, back then, it, it, they say, well, there was no concussion protocol, and it actually was. You know, if you got not goofy, you know, they're going to they're gonna talk to you, see how you're doing. And, you know, we had guys, you know, if they did get hurt, they didn't play. You know, it wasn't like they made you play at all costs or anything. Right. You know, give them smelling sauce and chuck him back in the game. Um, and I'll be honest with you, it seems today with the, the helmets these days, you know, compared to our bushel baskets we wore, that, you know, you actually had separation between your head and the helmet, except right. on the sides of your head. Yeah, we didn't have as many concussions, it seemed like. Yeah, I could be wrong, and I'm sure I'm wrong, but we just didn't have as many guys who missed games for that. And again, if you were hurt, you're hurt. If you have a concussion, you have a concussion. You're not going to be up to par, and you know, so you're not going to play. Yeah, it doesn't benefit anybody to throw no. you out there. Right? No, you're just going to hurt the team if you're out there. You know, and when you can't come back, you know, you go from being out for three weeks to being out for the whole season. It doesn't right. benefit anybody. Right. Um, so, yeah, so after college, played club lacrosse. Had a blast doing that. I also got into coaching up there in Maryland. And then also being the kind of guy, you're getting married and needing money, I started officiating. So when, when you were coaching up there, was it, you know, kind of what you described earlier, right? Going back to the neighborhood, mm -hmm. coaching, a, coaching a local neighborhood team. But was, was that what you were doing? Not necessarily, in, you know, where, where you grew up, but is that the yeah, kind of organization you were in coach, with? Yeah, I coached yeah. in the youth neighborhood program. And, um, you know, which was cool, you know, it, it, it was always neat when you had, you know, that younger guy comes back from playing at a decent school, and, you know, and you see, you know, you, you give him the old spiel, you know, I busted my butt, and I did this, and I did that, and that's why I got to play there, so you need to do the same thing, and, you know, it, it was good for the kids, and then, of course, you had the older, uh, more grizzled coach, you know, who, who played the, you know, the hard ass, you know, so you got to go in there and kind of be the, the, uh, the foil to him, so did that, like I said, I started officiating. It was nice up there because with the officiating, they'd give you all the games you wanted because you had games all day long, all across the city. You, know, you had your mile games, your Maryland youth lacrosse games, but then each location had so many kids, they have an in-house program too. So you may have, uh, you know, in your, say your eighth grade, you have a triple-A team, a double-A team, a single-A team, a triple-B, a double-B, a B, and then you'd have your in-house right. program. So there was opportunities. I would, I would go out, my wife wouldn't see me all weekend. You know, go out and make 25 bucks a game, you know, knock out six games a day. And, th and there wasn't, so here, right, we, we, we suffer one of the many resources that we suffer with shortages of are, are officials. Mm -hmm. And even with that, a 
amount of, of teams and games, you, there were no yeah. shortages of officials. No, because you had, you know, a couple hundred of us every year getting out of college. Wow. You know, wanting to make money. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd go and I'd be on the same field all day. You know, and, and being 22, 23 years old, you could go out and be out there all day long. It wouldn't right, kill you. Right, right, right. You know, today I have three games, I'm ready to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I got to work up to that. Um, so now you'd be out there all day long. And you, like you said, you would do it, you know, Saturday, Sunday. And, you know, as you got time under your belt, then you started getting to do high school games. Um, or I used to do inner city games. Yeah, inner city youth lacrosse program in Baltimore. Right. And, um, you know, some of the areas you'd go to would be kind of rough. And, uh, but I volunteered because you got double pay. Really? Yeah, I wanted the money. And um, so, yeah, you'd, you'd go to the games and, you know, of course, uh, you know, culture is a little different, but it was fun to see the kids out there trying to learn. And what was good is most of the coaches wouldn't care if you talked to the kids and tried to help them as an official. You know, if like I saw a kid doing something, I say, "Hey, number three, you know, maybe you want to try this or try that, and try to point them in the right direction and help them out a little yeah, bit." Yeah, that's awesome. You know, um, I did have one experience of during the game. We were we were up there and. Um, we're going down the field, and all of a sudden, I, I, I heard some loud noises. And all of a sudden, I saw all the players on the field on the ground, except me and the other official were standing up, and they were yelling, Get down, get down, Mr. Official, get down. Well, somebody was uh, chasing somebody across the street and taking shots at them. And they took off, and it was, you know, cops came, and it was over with. We just continued the game. Got the game spun back up. Game spun back <laughs> up, which is, you know, it was really, it, it, it kind of, we laugh about it, but it's kind of sad that, you know, those kids got to go through that kind of stuff. Right. You know. But it was good to see him out there playing. And every year, you know, at Curley, Archbishop Curley, we play some of the inner city schools. We play Edmondson High School, Mervo, and those schools. And it was fun to go play them. You know, we would, we would really, you know, we called them our stat builder games um, because we beat them so bad. But it was good to see him out there year after year playing. And, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read about Morgan State yep. lacrosse team. Yeah. You know, they, for a while, they had, had a pretty good program going there. And, and hopefully – um, and I know it's still going on in Baltimore where the, the, the kids are playing. And I know it's, it's grown in another location. Now we have the bridge lacrosse that uh, is working to get more minorities out playing, which is yep. good to see. And that's really something that would be good to see happen down here, uh, which is something I've, I've bounced around with a couple of people. Yeah, I think bridge exists in Dallas, right? I don't know. I think it exists in Dallas, but yeah, not, not but, here. Yeah, maybe yeah. trying to get something going down here with the youth program in one of the, the more needy areas. You know, there's great athletes everywhere, and yep. you know, whatever you can do to try to fund it, and you know, I know Taylor was talking about you know through U.S. Lacrosse getting the grants and all that stuff to help the kids out and get them going. Um, you know, it's something would be good to get going down here and try to tap that resource and give them an opportunity, and uh, or even if you have to go around to businesses and, and you know, get donations to buy the equipment for sure. And uh, I know I could go in a garage and probably outfit about seven kids right now with lacrosse helmets and gloves and sticks and all that good stuff. Right? <laughs> Yeah, we're we're fortunate in that regard because, you know, we're we're older. We've got all life experiences behind us. Our kids are out of the house, and, and we've got the resources and the time to do stuff like that, like like this, something as simple as this, right? Yeah. Or, or coaching, or officiating, or starting up teams or programs like that. Yep. We we we've got that luxury. Yeah. We need more people, um, who rather than 
oh, my kid's graduated. I'm done, right, and, and walking away. That's one of the big things down here, you know, is, you, you know, with the programs, unlike the programs back in Maryland where they're more community-driven, you know, down here you get parents, I want to get involved because my kid's playing, and when their kid moves on, they move on, and then you depend on the next group of parents to come in to run things for you, right. as opposed to having, you know, my, my uh, uh, first coach, the guy coached up until the time he died. He probably put 50 years in as a coach, coaching little kids, because he enjoyed doing it. Yeah. He went to his job at Falcon Steel, got off at 3.30, he showed up at the field at 4 o'clock, we practiced till 6, you know, and that's what he did, and he enjoyed doing it. Yeah, that's good stuff. You know, and, um, you know, so, you know, being able to do that here and trying to eventually one day get things a little more structured, where it's not a parent-driven organization. Um, I think we have a few like that, you know, looking at the Woodlands, you know, they seem to thrive year after year after year. Yeah, they're more corporate. It seems you to know. me, and I, I, you know, I don't know all the details, but it seems like it's a more corporate approach, right? Yeah. More corporate board rather than moms and dads trickling through trying to turn knobs and push buttons for their kids, right? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, Highlights is, is like that to a certain degree. You had some of the same people stay for quite some time, even after their kids are done. And, you know, so it helps with a little continuity. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Highlights because I want to I want to get to that. The Hornets. The Hornets. The Hornets. <laughs> so, full disclosure, um, you know, when my son finished up playing fifth and sixth grade in Friendswood, um, he actually, we, we bumped into John while we were creating, or while I was creating Pylax. I think at one point I remember we went out and had lunch somewhere and I was trying to appeal to your, uh, to your emotions and see if I could get you to come coach in Friendswood. Um, at the time you, had, you, you were committed to, to the Hornets. So my son actually left friends with youth organization that came up and that's where we really started to see the impact of your coaching right mm -hmm. which was with with Dylan and the Hornets and I, I think there's some parallels between what what I was able to do with with Phylax and what you did with the Hornets right so I'm curious to dig in a little bit of the history of the Hornets and highlights specifically and, and, and some details around that organization and, and everything you did there okay well I uh, moved down here in 2005 for business, and at the time my son was five years old, and my daughter was nine, nine, ten. Well, both of them, had, you know, my son started playing. He had two seasons under his belt in Maryland already at the bright old age of five years old, and my daughter had, I guess, uh, six, five or six years under her belt. So we moved down here, and um, of course I want to get them, you know, playing lacrosse. Yep. So no problem, with my daughter. We we come down. You know, live in the Clear Lake area. We go. We sign her up for uh, with the Clear Lake program, and it was kind of funny. We get down here, and they're like, you know, we're we're new to the area, and oh, okay, well, you know, and they start giving the spiel about Clear Lake and the program and all that, and you know, has your daughter played before? And yeah, she's played a little bit. You know, started when she was four years old. And they're like, really? <laughs> Where are you guys from? They all from Maryland. Like, wow, really? You know, do you know anything about lacrosse? Yeah, I dabbled a little bit. I know a little bit about it. And that that conversation and, sounds very familiar. And me. we talked, <laughs> the next thing I know, I was the girls' varsity lacrosse coach, <laughs> which I'd never coached girls lacrosse before in my life. You know, I, I, you know we were supposed to be 10 players in the field. With them, you got 12 players. Um, but the bad part was, they nowhere for my son to play. You know, with him, you know, 
going on six years old, they right. they only right. had you know started in fifth grade, and yep. they were dead set. You can't play. You can't play. So I played along the first year with. I coached a girls varsity team, which was a, a unique experience. Um, coaching high school girls was definitely different than coaching boys. Um, so the following year, I come back from again. I say, you know, okay, I help my program out. Help me out. Let my son play. I don't expect him to play, but let him get a uniform. Let him go to practice. You know, go through the drills, go through everything. I said, I promise you, he won't be a hindrance. He won't be messing around. He's all business. So they let him do it for about three weeks. And the guy in charge decided he, he just, he didn't want nothing. Because he didn't want to have other kids come out and, you know, want to do the same thing and, and all that good stuff. And I told him, I said, look, I said, this is your chance. I said, if you don't let him play, I'm leaving. I'm going to start a program. And you're going to regret it. Yeah, you know, not to sound arrogant, but I Absolutely. said, look, this is the way, you know, this, that's going to be my goal. And they're like, Matt, sorry. Okay, so he had another year got wasted. So I'm looking around trying to find a place to play. And I'm told that Cypher didn't care. They let him play. Well, Cypher was on the other side of the world, an hour and ten minutes away. Uh, I heard the Woodlands had a little in-house program for younger kids, but again, a long way away. So... I'm looking, I see this uh, Houston Youth Lacrosse. Yeah, they're up in Midtown. I figure, well, it's, it's a ways to go, but not too bad. So I called a guy named Mark Soper, who was uh, in charge at the time. Now, they had Pershing Lacrosse, uh, Lanier, Lamar, uh, Boys and Lamar Girls. That's what made it up. And they only had Pershing, which was a seventh grade team. So I called Mark. I said, hey, look, man, you know, Maryland, I'm interested in getting something going for the younger kids, fifth and sixth graders, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, would you guys be interested in starting a team? And he goes, yeah, well, this this year we, we, we really can't this year, but, you know, if you're interested in helping out with Persian, we'll let your son be on the team. Well, he just went from, you know, home from a play for a fifth and sixth grade, now he's going to play seventh grade, right, in, in second grade. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so we go out there. And meet the coach. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, you'd be the assistant coach. All that stuff. I'm like, that's cool. You know, that's, you know, whatever you want to do, you tell me, I'll help out and all that good stuff. So, um, they, they didn't have a, a, a bunch of a turnout for their team. I think we had 15 kids, 16 kids tops. Were those Ryan. all Persian kids? Or yeah. was it, okay, aside from Ryan, it was yeah. a Persian kid. Okay. Um, you know, so, yeah. So, basically, you had 14 kids and you had Ryan. Right. You know, the kid who, you know, was still bobblehead. And um, so we get in practice, and um, we're, we're running a, 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 a pass and pick drill. And so the coach is, you know, okay, Ryan, I want you to go out there, and I want you to set a pick, you know, blah, 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 blah. So Ryan gets out there, boom, he runs past the kid, cuts back, sets a pick on the kid's back hip, squares him up. Kid, the other guy runs by, and blah, blah, blah. And the coach is like, no, Ryan, that's wrong. You're not supposed to do it that way. Well, of course, Ryan looks at me like, what? That's the way you always showed me. I'm like, shh. <laughs> Just nod your head, Ryan. Listen <laughs> to the coach. Do what you're supposed to do. What do you want you to do? Blah, 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 blah. So, so anyway, so he played with them. In our last game of the year, you know, we, we didn't have a real good team. We're down, to, um, we're down to 11 players. And Ryan's number 11. And we're playing the Woodlands. Right? So we're playing the best team in town. May have been the best eighth grade or seventh grade team in, in, in state right. at the time. 
So we're playing, well, lo and behold, one of our players gets hurt. So the coach is looking at me. You going to play him? I'm like, I don't care. Go ahead. So Ryan, get out there. Don't get hurt. So Ryan runs out on the field. Well, Woodland's coach calls a timeout. And I see him calls his kids in. It was Keith. And he's sitting there and he's pointing at Ryan. And he's looking at them and I see him wagging his finger at him. You know, pointing at Ryan and wagging his finger at him. You know, basically telling him, don't you touch him. Right? Yeah, because he's, he's, he's not two helmets small. He's three helmets smaller right. than all these guys. Well, he didn't realize that. He's out there playing like he's as big as all these kids. Right? And he's running around. He's going after ground balls. And he's checking the crap out of people. And he's playing like there's no tomorrow. He actually almost scored a goal. But they wouldn't let him score because they want to break their shutout against us. <laughs> you know, but it was nice to see to have, have someone, you know, see a like, little kid out there like that, you know, telling his players, you know, go easy on them. Yeah, well, and, yeah. And, and, you know, obviously KT's never had any success coaching, right? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. So, so anyway, uh, the following year, we, we started the Highlax Hornets. And um, I came up with the name Hornets because it, Brian went, went good with Highlax. So was was so those other teams, Pershing and Lamar, mm-hmm. they were all discrete teams, but they all fell under this Highlax yes. umbrella. Mm-hmm. What function did Highlax, that umbrella, serve? Uh, supplying the fields. Okay. You know, at the time, they hadn't developed uh, South Campus yet, but they were working on getting the funding for it. And, you know, the idea was to have, have these teams be able to play under one organization who would organize, you know, everything, fundraising, registration, all that good stuff, and try to keep it under one umbrella and then provide a place for them to play. Um, so yeah, we started the Hilux Hornets, and the colors green and gold came from my youth days. That's the colors we wore when I was a kid. And uh, if you look at our website today, Hilux website's still orange and blue. But then there's Hilux's green and gold. And I remember Mark Soper going, well, we prefer you know orange and blue. And I went, well, one problem at Syracuse colors, and I will never have a team with Syracuse colors. I said, two, Green and gold is the colors when I was a kid, and I want my kid to play under the same colors. He went, okay, no problem. So we started uh, you know, started the Hornets up. They helped me uh, you know, get it organized and you know, get the word out. And lo and behold, our first year we had 26 kids sign up. That's awesome. So, yeah, it was awesome, except I was the only coach. Were you really? I was the only coach. So we're... So we're there, we're having our parent meeting, and you know, I figure I'm gonna, I'm gonna set these yahoos straight right from the get-go on how things are gonna be, and you know, we got them all, the parents sitting in the, in the bleachers, and I, you know, I say to them, I said, okay, I said, um, who here's ever played lacrosse before? Okay, I'm gonna give me all, okay, yeah, you never played lacrosse, so let me coach, I don't wanna hear anything out of you, only thing I wanna hear is you cheering for our kids, cheer for the other team when they score, Make it a positive experience. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, some dad's going to stick his hand up. Well, I played at TCU or I played at Texas Tech. Well, I'm looking and I'm looking, like, well, I see one hand go up in the back. I'm like, yeah, 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 where'd you play? Well, I played at Cornell and I was on a 1976 championship team that beat your turfs. I'm like, come on down, you're assistant coach. <laughs> and that's Dave Littner. Really? And Dave Littner, that's how I met Dave. And uh, so Dave came down, his son Matthew was playing. And, so how old was Matthew at that point? Uh, he was fifth grade. I believe it was fifth grade. Oh, wow. All right. And um, so, yeah, so he, uh, he helped me the first year. And lo and behold, our first year, uh, we played Clear Lake. We beat them 19-2. to 
remember earlier in my discussion about Clear Lake. So we got our revenge. We beat them in the playoffs, and we ended up winning the city champion. B division city championship. We didn't beat the Woodlands. You know, we didn't play in the A level. But we had good success that first year. And um, following year, we had 48 kids. We had two teams. What, what did you attribute that growth to? So the, coming out of the box, right, that first year, especially when you consider there's other teams under that umbrella that mm -hmm. got players, right? I mean, for you to break out of the box like that and have some 26 or 24 yeah, kids. 26. And then double it almost the next year. I mean, how, what, what, what how happened? Do you that? Well, with the with St. John's, Kincaid, Episcopal, Presbyterian, you know, all these schools that had seventh and eighth grade teams. Right. You know, these kids had brothers who had, were fifth, sixth grade who wanted to play and had nowhere to play because there was no other team around right. at that time. And uh, so we drew a lot of private school kids. And then also, the one stipulation I had with Mark when we started the program was that I would accept any kid, no matter what his age was, if he wanted to play, and if they, we required him to sign a waiver, you know, if he was a, you know, a second grade kid, and they required because of safety or whatever, I still took him. Right. Um, you know, so we got some young kids come out, you know, kids that were, you know, my, my kid was third grade, you know. And so I had several third graders who, you ended up seeing play who were with us that whole time. Um, so yeah, so we, we doubled, the, uh, you know, after one year, um, stayed that way for, I guess, another year. Then we ended up having three teams. So how much do you remember back then? So you had access to fields, right, through Hylax, right? There was structure, organization, yep. there were coaches. What was registration cost? Ah. <sighs> Was it subsidized at all? Five bucks. Yeah, it might have been a little higher. It might have been closer to two hundred. I, I I don't know. You know, I was the one perk I got as being a coach. I didn't get paid anything. Yeah, you know, but my son got to play for free. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> in, in fact, you know, coaching actually cost me money because I bought balls. I mean, one year Jim oh. Murphy and I bought practice uniforms. Right. You know. Um, well, just the the back and forth, right? Yeah. The drive. Yeah. I mean, all those incidentals that no one ever thinks of, right? Yep. So, so yeah, I got the program going, and we ended up, uh, you know, we, you know, Matthew moved on to um, AOS, and, you know, Dave moved on with him, and then I was fortunate enough, when he moved on, Jim Murphy started, his son Jack started playing, and, and, and Jim uh, was W&L guy, yep. and so him and I started coaching together, and, um, you know, we put together some good teams through the years, and, uh, you know, we ended up having some kids go play college across off that team. Organization. But it was good to see, you know, we went from, you know, the one team, now Hylax has all the way down to Instructional League, you know, up to eighth grade, boys and girls. I was out at, um, I was out at South Campus, I think it was last season. I assume I was there for a game, right, but I, 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 I'd gotten there early, and there was a Hornets practice going on, mm -hmm. and they were little guys, right? yeah. I'm guessing third or fourth grade, I don't know. Uh, but they're one of the first organizations here locally I've seen run small goals, half field, yeah. just gloves and helmets, right, with yeah. the boys. And, and it was just a, no goalies, mm -hmm. right? It was just a, a pickup game, yeah. make it, take it, right? Well, not make it, take it, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, there, there was a little bit of instruction and some drills, but most of practice was just 
that unstructured play. Yeah. And they're, they're the first ones I've seen. I'm sure the Woodlands is doing something mm. similar, right? And Kingwood and some of those guys up north. But they're the first ones that I've really seen here in the greater Houston area that have, that have done that and instituted that as part of their practice. Yeah, well, I, can, I can tell you as a, um, a prior five-year-old who had to play on a 110-yard field with a March wind blowing, with a one-size-fits-all helmet that as you ran, bounced around, and you were eventually looking out the ear hole and had to slide the helmet back, playing on that big field was no fun. You know, it was it was more work than it was fun. So, yes, changing that, you know, small side games, right. um, you know, gets the kids more engaged, makes it a lot more fun for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and it, it, you get the kids that you are out there who, who parents are making them out there, and, you know, they're the ones standing around, you know, picking daisies and, you know, seeing if they got, if they're made of butter or not, the buttercups. And the other kids are out there hardcore going at it, and you know what, and if they want to stand there and do that, yeah, you know what. They're having fun. They're out doing something. Knock yourselves out. You know, you got your parents off your back. <laughs> you know. So we, know. we we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the the 2017 group, that eighth grade group. Mm. Um, I don't remember the record of that eighth grade year. I don't remember losing a game. Though. Oh man, we no, we did. We remember we we played the Woodlands three times. We lost home the first time seven to five. We lost home. The next time, I think it was eight to seven. I don't remember that game. And then we beat them in the championship. Yeah, yeah. The, so, one yeah. that, the one that mattered. Right? Yeah. And I think the final score in that championship game was something crazy, like five to four. It, it was a pretty low scoring game, right? It was five to three. Five to three. Unbelievable. And um, yeah, we, um, you know, through the years, between me and Mark and me and Dave, I'd say the Hornets program that I was a part of, we rung up probably about 130 wins. Does the does that Hylax structure like you talked about earlier? Does that still exist and still function? And there's still Hylax is still a, yeah. an umbrella, and these teams they are now. It. Now they have uh, Lamar is under it. Persians doing their own thing. At one time they had Pin Oak and Pin Oak separated. Yeah, I still remember Pin Oak. Uh, you know, practiced on the field next to us, and it was amazing how you know we're out there just demolishing everybody, and poor Pin Oak is just having a heck of a time. And, you know, the, the one key we were missing on our Hylax team was having a decent goalie. Now, we had a kid who, who did the best he could, you know, right. but we were missing that one key. And I remember seeing this short little fat kid standing over in his Persian, or his, his Pin Oak outfit, uniform, staring at our practices and watching us. And one day I went over to him and said, hey, what's going on, man? He goes, coach, I'm tired of losing. I want to play for a winner. Come on over. You're welcome to play for us. He goes, well, I can't because of the waivers. I said, I'll talk to your coach if you want. Well, I went and talked to the coach, and, and they want to know parts of it. Now, he was a defenseman at the time, and he told me, I'll do anything you want to get to play for you. Well, it just so happened his mom uh, was a board member, so she signed a waiver. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's how Holden got on the team. And, um, we converted him in seventh grade to a goalie. And uh, you talk about a kid with a work ethic. I mean, he was yeah, calling me yeah. all the time, asking me to come out and shoot at him and work with him. And uh, he was definitely uh, that key to help push us over the top to beat the final beat the Woodlands. Yeah, we had some good battles with him, but that was the one place we were hurting a little bit. And he, uh, he came on board and, and made the difference. Yeah, it was a great season. 
Yeah, it was fun, you know. What was cool about it, and I think, remember, I guess it was in seventh grade when we uh, we got our special uniforms. Remember, everybody had their own, uh, no, maybe not, maybe it was in sixth grade we got them. Then we had three teams. We had the, we had the, uh, I made the, the A team, we called them the Green Hornets, because we didn't want to ever go, oh, you're the Gold Hornets, you're something special. So we were the Green Hornets, and the B team was the White Hornets, and the C team was the Gold Hornets. Well, our kids were like, you know, Coach, we wanted something to separate us from everything else. You know, what could we do? And I, was, I talked to Murph. I said, well, why don't we get something special uniform-wise? And that's how we ended up with those, those beehive uniforms. Because yeah. before that, we just had the green unis. So we got together, got together with all the parents. And I said, hey, look, I got this uniform designer shirt. I told them, they're all like, sign us up. Let's get them. I still have one of those hanging in my office at home. Do you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, you see one thing you probably remember, and I heard you talk about it with, uh, during your talk with Taylor. Um, it was about matching. You remember we always we had we had socks, the shooting shirt. You know, I, I couldn't do anything about the helmets because a kid, you know, trying to ask a kid to go throw down 140 bucks for a helmet, even though the kids in that group could afford it. You know, they, the St. John kids want to wear their St. John, the Kincaid kids, and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the, the uniform itself, you know, if you didn't have the right color socks, you weren't playing. Well, that's, that's where I got it from. I remember an incident so vividly. I can't remember if it was the seventh or eighth grade year. I remember it was, it may have been the first game of the season and it was cold, just unbearably cold. And I want to say we were playing Klein, maybe. Yeah, kid showed up with purple sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> was, no, or was he wearing a, he was wearing a top. No, he's wearing a well, Texas a top. Yeah, Texas hoodie. And you called him out, right? Yeah. I told him, take it off, you're not playing. You're not playing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, his, his mother was pissed at me. I'm I like, look, that. I said, yeah, can yeah. you imagine? Here comes the U.S. Marine Corps silent drill team comes out in their dress blues, and some guy, well, I'm just going to wear my uh, my green and uh, peanut butter color uniform instead. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, it's, or he's going to show up and he's wearing some kind of clown socks. That's where I did. I still have uh, and still wear uh, a pair of the old Hornet socks, right? And that's right. You really? It's like, <laughs> we need to have socks at match, man. It's yeah, yeah. And parents thought I was goofy, and I was like, look, man, we're, we're a team. We need to all look the same. I don't need some kids showing up wearing lime green socks or lime green shoes. Right. You know, which is when I ended up at Episcopal coach and I had the same rule and I made some parents upset. You know, that you know, their kid wants to stand down. I'm like, well, we're wearing our uniform. We wear blue, black, and white. Where do we wear hot pink? Right. There's no hot pink in our uniforms. Right, right. Hey, one more question about the Hornets and then we'll get on to EHS. Um, South Campus. Do you, do you know the history around South Campus? Right? I mean... Is it, is it Hylax that, that, that purchased and owned South Campus and runs South Campus? No, South Campus Sports Association. Okay. Bought it. So they have football. I think it's called the SFL. They have the soccer leagues there. And they got the, uh, they got the lacrosse and then they got the baseball and softball field. Okay. So it actually, that's right. There's baseball fields there. Yeah. And, yeah, and the soccer, there's soccer fields farther west mm -hmm. in that same facility, right? <clears throat> yep. But yeah, I remember I was, when they were working on that, because we actually practiced, um, I forget what the heck's the name of the road there, Stella, not Stella. Is it Stella Link? The one that cuts across from Stella. Oh. That yeah. wasn't there when we first started. We practiced on the field over by the apartments. Oh, that was really? Off fields, and then they put the field, they put the road through, yep. and then they put the fields in. All right. Yep. And that's still, the, the field itself is still organized the same way. The South Campus, I guess, still. Yeah, it's still three fields there. Which I guess eventually is what they're going to turf on. Oh, wow. I'm hoping. Wow. Well, I guess now it doesn't matter. I'm not over anymore. But, I, I, yeah, I remember we'd have rain, and I was one. I 
you know, coming from Maryland, it didn't matter if it rained, snowed, sleeted. As long as it wasn't lightning, we practiced and played. And, um, you know, of course, they were trying to protect fields over there. So whenever it rained, I would skip out of work. I'd run over and look at the fields and see what they looked like and did everything I could to, you know, to, to have that game going on. You know, I don't want our games, our games canceled because, you know, a lot of times, as you remember, you know, we would set up three-way games. You know, I'd call up and have, you know, West Houston and SciFair come down, and, you know, we'd right. play West Houston, and they would play SciFair, and then we would play SciFair, and that way each team would get two games in, right. two for one. Um, down there. That's why, we, you know, that's back when we did our own scheduling, and we had seasons where we played 20 games, 20, 21, 22 games. And, um, and unfortunately, I wish, I wish we'd have been, you know, up in spring or somewhere like that, or if the Williams was closer to us, that way we could have played them more often. Because the best competition we always got was playing those guys. You know, the other team who played, you know, I don't know how many 19 to 1 wins we had, or yeah, sometimes we make a boo boo and we'd score 20. I remember we played, um, we played West Houston, and um, we're just, you know, first quarter, we're up on 10 nothing. And so I got the kids, okay, play with your left hand if you're a righty, play with your right hand if you're a lefty, pass it around 10 times, all that good stuff. Well, then it gets to the point where, I, you know, we got the defenseman playing offense and all that stuff. Well, we made a mistake. We scored 21 goals. All right. You know, it's taboo now. Growing up as a kid, I had been beat one time 29 to 1. And guess what? My dad got me a Slurpee afterwards, and I was like, ah, big Everybody's deal. Wrong. You know, who gives yeah. a crap? Well, nowadays, I guess the kids, they get scarred from that, you know, emotionally uh, scarred and have to have go to counseling and all. So, anyway, we beat this team 21 to, I think it was 21 to 2 or something. I'm sitting there talking to Murph after the game, and he goes, don't look now, but I think this mother from West Houston wants to have a discussion with you. <laughs> I don't know if you remember it or not. How do you not remember it? Oh, my God. I'm sitting there turning around. Well, here she's coming across the field. She was a big one, too. She's coming across the field, and she's making a beeline for me. And she comes over, and she starts giving me a face full of crap, how I'm the worst coach in the world, how dare I run the score up on their team, and, She's going to talk to the head of the Hilux and get me fired and all this stuff. I said, well, the head of the Hilux is right up there. That guy up in the booth, you can talk to him. And he looked down and went, sorry. <laughs> I said, well, not for nothing. Maybe you should talk to your coach and get your kids coached up a little bit more. I said, because our kids are nothing special. They're all Houston kids. Right. You know, it's just we teach the basics. My kids can pick up a ground ball. My kids can pass the ball. My kids can move off the ball. My kids can do everything, and on top of it, they know how to shoot. Least important, I said, was the shooting side, because if we couldn't pick up a ground ball, it didn't matter how good of a shot we were. Right. And that's one thing with Dave and I and with Murph, we taught our kids, you know, solid fundamentals, and, you know, yep. and that's what made them so good. But, yeah, it was funny, and Murph was like, hey, don't look now, but I think his mother wants to have a discussion with you. And I turned around like, oh, shit, <laughs> here she comes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so. See, I was talking so about. some good times. Talk about EHS, and and I think when you talk about EHS, you maybe add some flavor around SPC. You know what what is the SPC, and how does it relate to THSLL, right? And, and how you functioned specifically at a private school, right? With respect in in, in SPC and in, in THSLL, maybe how that's different from from how the public schools have. And I can probably add some color around the public school piece, but it's. And Taylor and I talked about it yesterday. Mm. The in the public school environment, right, it's not a sanctioned sport. 
and schools hold all the cards. It's an uneven relationship, right? The, the, the lacrosse organizations and the coaches are coming begging hat in hand, you know, for, hey, just carve me out a piece of unlit grass yeah. that I can use, right? The, the schools hold all the power um, in, in that public school environment. But the private school environment, right? Completely different. Sanctioned, supported, right? Yeah. Full use of the facilities. And, and it, it's, a, it's a big difference and a big discrepancy, right? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, well, if you know, I started actually in high school side at St. John's. I did know that. Yeah, yeah. coach with, with uh, Sam Chambers, and, yeah, which was a blast. Sam's a great guy. Um, I love coaching with him and coaching those kids. Um, you know, you get uh, there's, there's definitely a distinction between the, the EHS kids and the St. John kids. You know, St. John kids are more for power heads, you know, smart as can be, um, and really type A personalities. The physical kids, I mean, they're all smart kids too, but definitely, definitely more of a, a laid back attitude between the two. Yeah, I told my son uh, when he was applying to schools, because he'd asked about St. John's, and first off, I was like, man, you don't have the grades, right? I said, but you also should be aware at St. John's, at the end of every semester, they stack rank the kids. They take the top, the bottom 10%, they grind them up in the meat, and they feed them to the rest of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny, you know, you, know, you know, my son Ryan, you know, he's a pretty good player, and um, he was number one on Sam's list, and he couldn't get in St. John's. Really? Now, at the time, they were only taking, you know, 10 kids in their ninth grade class, 10, 12 kids. So, six boys, six girls. Yeah. You know, so, to get in, and, uh, you know, Sam was Jones, and to get him in there. And, well, get, and that's the in. difference between a private school that, they started K, right, at St. John's. I think yeah. they started kindergarten. So, yeah, and Kincaid's the same way, right? So, you know, you've got to get in that queue early. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because the kids go there and they stay. Now, since then, St. John's has accepted more kids in, in the ninth grade than what they did in the past. Um, so, yeah, coaching at St. John's, it was funny because, you know, at the time I'm coaching there, my daughter was at Episcopal. You know, so the, the, the two of them together was, uh, you know, that was arch rivals. And she was playing. She's playing at Episcopal. Right. You know, so I, I still remember we're playing, uh, they're playing over St. John's. The girls played first. So I'm up in the stands with my wife, and I'm with all the Episcopal players, and of course, Sam walks over and goes, oh, by the way, here's your coaching hoodie, right? <laughs> Comes over and hands me my St. John's. Well, underneath my, I got my Episcopal shirt on. Underneath well, I got my St. John's coaching shirt, right? You know, got everything tucked under so no one can see the red shirt I was wearing. And, um, so in that game, we're playing, we're playing them. And, um, you know, of course, I'm hearing grief from like, how can you coach at St. John's when your daughter's here? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, Episcopal coach didn't want me to be assistant coach, so I'll go where I want it. So we're playing while we go into overtime. Who was the Episcopal coach at that point? Uh, Mike Donnelly. All right. Mike Donnelly and Connor Cook, the assistant yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And great guys had great programs yeah. going over there. And um, so we're playing them. It goes into overtime. Right? So we're going. We had a, uh, we had a really good face-off guy. Guy was unbelievable. They had a really good face-off guy, too. Actually got recruited to go play at Denver, and he decided to go to Texas instead. Go figure. So anyway, we win a face-off. Sam calls a timeout. Everyone comes in. He, he looks at me and goes, what are we going to do? I'm like, give me your whiteboard. So I get the, the, the midfield line out there and the attack line out there. I get him separate way. I mean, I'm drawing the play up, you know, what we're going to do and all that stuff. And it was funny with these kids. If you drew it up, they ran exactly what you told them to do. You know, and I told them, I said, do exactly what I said. 
You're going to see someone's going to look like they're open. They're not open. Wait to the next pass. That guy is going to be money. Dig it out there. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, we score, win the championship. Or not win the championship, I'm sorry, win the, win the game. Win the overtime game. Well, that was the longest ride home I ever had from a game. Even when I played bad in high school, my father drove me home. Because I had my daughter and my wife just give me the death stare. I saw you over there with that whiteboard. I saw you draw that play out. You know, blah, 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 blah. Like, well, what do you expect me to do? I'm coaching for them. I'm not coaching for the boys in Episcopal. You know, that's the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was good. And also, I coached eighth grade too with him, assistant coach with uh, with Murph. And, oh, I didn't know uh, you. Jack coached. Daniel. All yeah. right. And same thing. We were playing um, playing AOS, and we actually I, I ran the swinging gate. You know, remember from uh, from Hoosiers? Yep. We ran a lacrosse version of it against them. And same thing in overtime to win the game. I remember we ran. Carl Berniker caught the ball off the pick, and boom, finished it. And to this day, I talk to Jack Jack Daniel and. Coach, remember we ran a swinging gate? Like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, I coached there two years with, uh, with Sam, and then um, uh, I ended up going over uh, to Episcopal. They had an opening over there, and uh, I started coaching. And it was nice. Uh, I came in, got to coach my son. He was, a, he was a freshman at the time, coaching for two years over there. And, uh, you know, definitely a different, uh, different atmosphere. And, you know, getting to the point you're talking about between the high schools, in a school, private school versus the clubs, um, you know, everything over there, you knew you had a field to play on, you had lights. Yep. You know, my first year, they were due for uniforms, and they said, just go buy what you want. You cut you know, the uniforms you want, you know, get your hoodies, your shooting shirts, your socks, the whole works, your coaching swag. Um, no questions asked from them what, what I wanted to buy. Um, we ended up getting black mat helmets. So we had white helmets and black mat helmets. We had two sets of helmets. Um, you had full support of school. You know, it, it was nice for the most part. Yeah, just the access to the resources. Yeah. Right? Now, we did have, you know, some restrictions, you know, with the SPC. Well, the public school kids were playing, you know, playing together all year long, basically. Right. You know, we were restricted. We couldn't practice as a team. You know, I couldn't coach any kids until February 1st. You know, in the fall ball, you know, I coached travel teams. I couldn't coach Episcopal kids. I could coach up to two. You know, so that hindered me in, in the, you know, coaching club ball in the fall. Summertime I could. You had up until, the, uh, I guess it was the 1st of August or 31st of August. Oh, I didn't like realize there was a difference between fall and summer. Yeah. Which I guess now, in retrospect, makes sense because yeah. of, like, the hurricane teams, right? Those were all the, the little tournaments. And those were a lot of EH boy, EHS boys on those on the yeah. hurricane teams, right? Yeah, I didn't realize there was a discrepancy yeah. between fall and summer. That's interesting. So, so you had school, you had you know you had full support. You know they helped you with uh, anything you needed. It was you know you didn't have to deal with the parent board. You know I dealt with the AD. Um, any issues we had, you know, and, and one thing you know, I, I was really stringent with the boys about. You know any issues you have, you come to me. I don't want to hear from your parents. And if you don't have satisfaction from me, you know then you go to the AD. Don't have your mom or your daddy go to the AD. You go to the AD. And then at that point, if there's an issue still, then, you know, if your parents need to get involved, then do what you got to do. And for the most part, it worked. I had some parents who would try, and I'd tell them, you know, flat out, you know, playing time, I don't talk to parents about it. I talk to your son. That's the way it is. And if you have an issue with it, you can go to the AD, and I'm sure he's going to tell you the problem between me and your son, and he's going to support me. You know, I'm not going to get fired because. 
because Little Johnny doesn't play. Um, now, on that note, depending on how much you donated, could have an effect on certain things. Not a lot. Yeah, the only, only thing I ever had with when it came to that, I had a, a particular player's parents donate a lot of money, and they didn't like the idea. Our first two weeks of practice, I was making the kids come out in the morning and run and get prepped for, uh, you know, for the season. And uh, it was funny because the kids moaned and groaned about it until, they were, until we were told we couldn't do it anymore because one particular kid couldn't get out of bed and show up on time, but the parents donated a huge sum of money. So when I told the kids we can't do it anymore, well, all of a sudden, they all bowed up and said, well, we're going to do it ourselves. Oh, that's awesome. And I still remember, you know, on my way to work, and I got the AD calling me up and goes, you know, what's going on? I thought I, you know, I told you you couldn't have two-a-days, you know, because you know, I was having two-a-days. I said, I'm not doing anything because, uh, you know, I'm on my way to work. I said, they're doing it on their own. I said, the captains are doing it. He goes, well, are you organized? I said, nope. I drop Ryan off, get in my truck, and I leave. I said, whatever they're doing. That's all on them. So if you want to go out and tell them they can't do it, that's on you. So what's the what's the relationship between SPC and THSOL? And and, and maybe talk too about how SPC is organized. Um, well, SPC is organized. You know, you have uh, you know teams, you know, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, and uh, up into um, Oklahoma that are in it, and they're all. It's a private school, Southwest Prep Conference, you know, prep schools. Are there, there's also TAPS, right? Yeah, TAPS is different. And is is there any relationship between no. SPC and TAPS? No. Are, are there, you know, do teams or schools start in TAPS and go to SPC? Is that some aspirational goal or they're just completely no, separate? Um, I, I don't know of any of the schools around that went that route, uh, at least in my time here. They've, they've all been in SPC. Um, I guess if they want to, you know, because TAPS doesn't have lacrosse. Right. If they want to get into having a lacrosse program or having a, you know, TAPS is a good sports program, but I think SPC is probably a notch above. Um, so I guess they could have aspirations to get into it. I know my son, he started off Lutheran South, which was a TAPS right. conference team, and didn't have lacrosse. He had, he had baseball and you know, football and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, Southwest Prep Conference and and uh, Texas High School Lacrosse. You know, Texas High, High School Lacrosse is a, I guess, encompassing. You know, you can be in SPC and playing Texas High School League, but you can't be in a Texas High School League and be in TAPS or being uh, being yeah. in SPC. Yeah. Um, so SPC has their own playoffs, their own conference championship, and then you know they also participate in the you know between the Houston team and you know EHS. ESD up in Dallas and um, some of the other schools up there, Fort Worth Country Day and uh, St. Mark's. You know, so they, um, and they're all the same now, like I mentioned in Maryland, where they have sports scholarships. The misconception a lot of the Texas high school teams have, they think the SBC has sports scholarships, which they don't. All scholarship money is need-based only. And it goes to a separate entity that decides whether you get money or not. So EHS will come out and say, we have $2 million this year given scholarships. And it'll go to the, the organization who decides who gets what, and that $2 million gets divvied up, you know, however they see fit for, um, you know, what they need now. You know, and as we know, schools like EHS and uh, St. John's and Kincaid, there's a lot of money at those schools. And, you know, 
what's good about it is they're looking to get you know less fortunate kids getting the opportunity to come to a school. I mean, you know, our tuition I think Ryan's last year was you know all in about twenty nine thousand dollars. Yeah, so it's tough to get you know some kid who's a really smart right. kid, you know, whose parents don't have the means you know to go to a school like that, and they provide them with the opportunity. So you get a little bit more diversity. You know, not only uh, racial diversity, but also financial diversity, you know, which is good both ways. So you get the, you know, these uber rich kids get to deal with the kids who aren't quite as, uh, you know, yes. uh, well off and vice versa. And I think it really makes a good, a good mix to school, makes it a better place. Is it, I've never understood it, and I'm not sure it's good or bad. I'm trying to understand why SPC schools play in THSLO. Um, I, don't, I don't know the history. I don't know the why. And well, and why do you think it benefits? Or, or why do you think the SPC schools want to play THSLO? I think the biggest thing is numbers. You know, there's just not enough schools in the SPC in the Houston area that you could you know, have a set schedule. You know, right. you got, you know, St. John's Episcopal, Kincaid, and, and Houston Christian. Yeah, that's it. You right. know? Um, then you can even travel up to Dallas, but then you only have a few schools up there. And then right. you go to Austin. So really, to, to play a good full schedule, you got to play these other schools, and right. it doesn't make sense to spend the money to drive all the way up to Dallas, uh, even though we generally would every year um, outside of you know, besides the conference. But you know, if I can drive over and play, you know, Katy or Kingwood or Woodlands or right. you know Friendswood, you know, much easier to do that and get more games under your belt. Yeah, yeah I've always wondered why. I, I mean, I guess I can see. The SP, SPC existing, right? So the rule you just described that does that, that doesn't allow teams to practice before the beginning of February. Mm -hmm. You know, in my brain, that's to encourage. They're smaller schools with smaller populations yeah. and fewer number of athletes, and they're trying to make sure every season starts and stops before yeah. the next one, so the boys or girls, you know, play. Multiple yeah, and, sports, and you had right? carryover. I mean, I had I had soccer players who, you know, SPC tournament would be. Two weeks into February, two and a half weeks in February. So I wouldn't have those kids until I'm getting ready to play my first game, the 21st or 22nd of the month. Right. They're just rolling. And that kids rolling out, and you know, but they were in shape. Right. You know, coming from the sport they were playing, whether it was swimming, wrestling, or whatever. Um, and uh, you know, so the only problem we had is when the kids, the wrestlers, trying to put the helmets on with their cauliflower ears, you know, hurt a little bit in that cold weather. But. Um, but yeah, yeah, that way you had, you know, you, they promoted multi-sport athletes. Yeah. You know, um, only thing, only place where they didn't promote the multi-sport athletes, of course, they was on the football side. You know, we had, that was a one little bit of contention I had there. I had two kids um, who were good lacrosse players. One of them is actually probably going to be drafted in the first round of the NFL mm. as a defensive, ta or offensive tackle, Walker Little. Really? He plays at Stanford. He was he, oh, yeah, yeah. he was a rookie of the year. Uh, his uh, his freshman year at Stanford. I mean the kid's just a beast. And I remember seeing him at Clear Lake, you know, here Ryan goes out there and he's, you know, four foot nothing playing against Walker, who at the time was probably six foot already, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah, they steered him and another player who ended up going to Baylor. Uh, the, the football coach really steered him away from playing lacrosse. Which is unfortunate because they're both good athletes. Yeah. Um, I think personally, I think they'd have benefited by playing multi multiple sports. I mean, it's it's but, interesting where you know 
again, going back to that SPC rule, the way SPC organizes the seasons, they do it in a way that there's not a lot of overlap, if any, to encourage boys to play multiple sports. Yeah. But even within that context, you know, you're facing the same challenges that we're facing on the public school side, which is the football coaches trying to monopolize these kids, right? Yeah, well, you know, they had spring football, you know, flag football. Right. Uh, which, you know, they wanted the kids to play, and they wanted them lifting weights and, and, and doing all the stuff that, you know. One school, and I don't know if they still do it or not, um, Capel, back around 2014, they had, they won the state championship. They had six kids won the state championship football. They had six kids, football players, went and played college lacrosse. Mm -hmm. But their coach, football coach, promoted the kids to play lacrosse. Right. That's rare. You know, and um, which, you know, I, I, going back in my high school days, you know, we all played multi sports. You know, the kids at Loyola, they weren't just lacrosse players, they were football players, they were soccer players. A little easier for them to get soccer because, you know, soccer in the East Coast is played in the, in the fall. Um, you know, so they had football and lacrosse players playing. Right. We're playing either lacrosse or playing baseball. The ones who weren't good enough athletes to play lacrosse. <laughs> Another dig at baseball. There you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, at, 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 uh, that was you know definitely something that hurt us when we'd go roll out there. You know, I'm playing whoever you know come the 20th of the month, and right. you know, for good or bad, we had 20 days on well, 20 days of practice. Figure, you know, 16 days of practice, 17 days of practice because we couldn't practice on Sundays. Well, yeah, then you watch, and it's interesting because, the, so this summer I watched um, Westlake go mm. back east, and I forgot which tournament they were playing in, Hondon or Geico or whatever the heck it was, but the Westlake team was actually back east, and I was watching them play in a tournament yeah. this summer, right? So you've got these public school programs that can operate year-round effectively, yeah. right? but the reality is championship bracket year in and year out dominated by the same private school teams, right? And they're all, they all have to exist within the context of the rules that you're describing, yeah. right? Yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Yep. So, so yeah, I did the, the uh, you know, coach the fiscal for a couple years, and that was a really good experience, but, you know, something we had talked about before with the, the start time for practice is what killed me. You know, after two yeah. years, I just, you know, I was an executive with a company, and I really, you know, had to travel and you know, really need to be at work until 5, 5.30 every day right. instead of bolting out at 3.45 and zipping across town to get to practice. And um, so I was assistant coach for a year, and then uh, you know, my son's senior year, I, I sat in the stands and, and watched what was going on for the first time ever, watching him. You know, I coached him his entire life. And uh, then I had to sit in the stands, and I sat up there as a good parent, kept my mouth shut. You know, no matter what I saw, I didn't say anything bad. And, I, you know, and after the game, I, you know, good job, way to go. And, and uh, you know, and took it from there. As opposed to when I was a kid, I would, you know, no matter what I did, my old man would ride me to the end of the world if I missed a tackle or, you know, should have had another goal. And a little story, my freshman year again, we're uh, freshman year of high school. We're playing friend school. It's a Quaker school in Baltimore. And we're playing them in the semifinals. And it is raining like there's no get out. A day that no Texas team would be allowed to play. Right? Feels a sloppy mess. We're playing them. I had four goals in the game. And we're going to overtime. 7-7, seven, seven, we're going to overtime. 
So, face off, boom, boom, we have possession. We get pushed, we get a 30 second penalty on, uh, on France. So we run our play, run our 30 second play. I was playing crease attack, I cut. Well, the guy fed the ball to me, and he threw it behind me and I reached for it. I caught it, slipped, fall on my ass. And one thing I was always taught, you know, you're throwing the goal, shoot. If you're on your butt, the goal is going to relax, you know, you may score. So I'm on my ass, left-handed with the ball, I shoot. Well, the goalie just gets a toe on it, hits the post, bounces out, our left side attackman picks it up, he buries it, and we're off to the championship. I heard shit from my old man from Charles Street all the way back home how I should have scored that goal. On the ground. On the ground. <laughs> so I'm pissed. Well, next day, you know, I get, we get a newspaper. I open the sports page. Freshman Parati leads Archbishop Curley to the championship game. So, of course, I cut it out, and I tape it to the screen door. So when he came home from work, that's the first thing he saw. So he walks in the house. He looks at it. Walks in, looks at me, goes, still should have scored. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I owe a lot of my success to him for really pushing. pushing yeah, for driving you, right? To be good. Because he made me, you know. Looking at my son compared to me, my son's a much better athlete than I was. I really had to work at it, you know, right. to get where I got. And he, uh, he was a little bit more fortunate, yeah. you know. So the last thing we should probably touch on is, so now you've, you've moved out of coaching, right? and you're officiating now, right? And, you know, I think you know how I feel about your officiating and all the other coaches, right? We, we love having somebody with your experience in your recent coaching experience, officiating, um, and you, you, you do a great job in a landscape where there's so few officials and even fewer good officials. Yeah. Right. I, I feel like we're always fighting over who gets John to officiate. Games, well, right? you know, it. Um, I guess the reason I got into officiating is, you know, with my son graduating, he uh, he ended up going to Virginia Military Institute to play, play lacrosse, and he's also going to commission in the Army as a second lieutenant when he graduates. And uh, I do want to give him a couple props here. Uh, you know, his freshman year, he led the team in scoring. His sophomore year, he's led the team in scoring. So he's, he's having a really good career. Um, but in order to be able to watch him play, I couldn't coach anymore. Right, right. So, uh, you know, because I want to fly as much as I could. You know, I had a lot of business trips. It's going to Jacksonville and making Georgia and places I generally don't have a lot of business. But I, I found business there. Um, so I decided the next best thing is I'd officiate, you know. Um, and, you know, I... I I know folks have a lot of concerns about the officiating in, in Houston, but I can tell you from the time I started that first team with myself and Dave Littner where a lot of games we didn't have officials, so either Dave or I would officiate uh, to where it is now is night and day. Um, you know, we've had, we had some rough years where we had officials who weren't real good, and one thing I'd always try to do as a coach, and most of the officials were receptive. You know, we had a lot of football guys come over. Right. And, you know, in between quarters, and at halftime, I go up to him and say, "Hey, you know, can I give you a little advice?" And you know, I, I built that respect in myself and Dave um, that they would listen to what we had to say because we were never abusive. We never screamed and hollered out. The only time I would get excited is if you know another team was playing real dirty and I was worried about my player getting hurt. Then I voiced my concern. But we'd always try to work with them and help them out. And you know, and over the years, it slowly, you know, we got more guys coming out, so we had enough officials to cover the games, but the quality was still lacking. But, you know, over the last, uh, I've seen over probably the last seven years, it's, it's gotten a lot better. You know, we, we still have some holes with guys who aren't 
where they should be, and it's not because they don't want to be the best they can be. You know, they they just don't have the training, don't have the field experience, they haven't played the game before. Um, again, as you mentioned, it's one advantage I've had. You know, having all these years under my belt. You know, I call the games the way I think they should be called, to the situation that's going on. You know, and some coaches get upset about it if they think I should call something at a certain time, but I don't call it. Because I'm certainly not going to change the tone of a game because some kid was 10 yards behind, the ball going down the field, and he happens to put his toe on the midfield line. I'm not going to call that. I never will call that. Right. Um, or if it's a you know borderline push and it's you know we're down to 15 seconds left in the game and it's tied, you know I, I'm going to officiate it the way I see it. And the reason I do that is one, that's the way I was taught way back when I was a 23 year old, and I'm you know I'm officiating in Maryland. I got these 40 and 50, 60 year old guys who've been doing it forever, and they told you don't affect the outcome of the game. Um, you know, so that's the way I try to call things. And, you know, it's for the coaches who have experience, you know, if I'm coaching a, a Woodlands game, you know, Keith is going to, you know, know what's up. You know, Jeremy Kingwood is going to know what's up. You know, Mike Ober, Kincaid is going to know what's up. But then you get some of these Division two coaches who are relatively new and, you know, they want everything under the sun called, every little bump and grind. Sometimes they get a little excited about things, but I think they've – they, they learn my style, how I like to do things, and they find out that, you know, they may have did it there, but your guy's doing it too, you know. So I'm calling it even both ways. I'm not, you know, if once I start, I'm consistent on how I'm calling a game. Unless i got to adjust and things start getting out of hand. Right. Um, well, the other thing I've noticed too with you is I think of, of all the officials I've experienced here locally, you communicate the most and the best, mm. right? So you, you know, as you're clearing the box, when you yeah. down the field, right? Just a quick explanation. Hey, yeah. this is what I saw, right? Hey, this is why that happened, right? Yep. And you know, we got we got quite a few guys who are pretty good at that. You know, uh, Tom Jenks is great at that. When I was yeah. when I was coaching high school, when he would if he if he made a mistake, he would come over, hey, Perotti, I, I yeah. messed up, man. I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's okay. You know, we're all human. Um, and you know, but I think the quality of the training the officials are getting, um, it's gotten better. So I think the quality is really really picked up. Um, you know. Tim Bodenhan is president now. I think he's done a good job getting uh, folks more involved in training and bringing training to us. Um, Tim, Tim's nothing if not structured. It's very structured. <laughs> and that's, you know, I guess he, he's an old naval guy and you know, everything's structured in the Navy and he's, he's done a good job with that. And, you know, I, and I, I see officiating with guys, you know, I officiate with a bunch of different folks and, you know, for the most part, they all do a great job, and not a one of them doesn't do their best. Right. You know, they all try. And what's good is we get together, and, you know, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What do you see? And, you know, I asked Craig Peterson, been officiating forever. Hey, Craig, you know, did you see, you know, I, I think I missed a call on this. What did you see? And so we talk back and forth, and, you know, it helps make each other better. And even after the games, you know, at, at times I'll, I'll call, you know, an official or a coach and ask him, okay, I did your game. What did you see I did right? What did you see I did right. wrong? You know, we get their feedback from the sideline. Um, you know, because I know as a coach, I can see shit 60 yards away from me that I can't see as a, an official 10 yards away from me, at least according to the coaches. You know, <laughs> when that ball goes out of bounds, their guy's always closer to it, even though I'm standing right on the end line. Um, so, and, and the high school is good. Middle school, you start getting a little challenged when you get more of these dad, dad type coaches. I had a had a case uh, with one particular team. I had a, a, a coach, and he's he's moaning and groaning about everything. 
and you know you get you get the size disparity yeah, with the kids. So if a kid gets bumped and he gets knocked down, right away you got to throw a flag. No, the kid didn't go after him. He didn't team up. He bumped into him. He felt your kid fell down. That's the way it goes. If the kid purposely tries to knock him down, well, I'm going to have a problem. And right. and I've been through that because again, my son started very young, and you know I've seen him on two occasions get downright belligerent after a kid two helmets bigger than him cheap shot at him. One case in particular, this kid cheap shot at him and picked up the ball and started running down the field and my son ran up and, and slashed the kid across the back of his legs and dropped him. And I had the official, God bless her, uh, only female official we had. Yep, I know you're talking about. And, and she's blowing the whistle and she's yelling, stop, 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 stop. And she told my son, number two, you need to calm down. And I'm like, no, he doesn't need to calm down. He needs to go in a penalty box. No, no, he, he shouldn't have did it. But the other kid did so. I said, no, 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 well, no matter what. I said, he's going in the box. And she's like, well, he don't have to. I said, get in the box, two minutes, non-releasable. <laughs> so I was a coach, and I teed my own kid up and put him in the box. And no one could ever accuse me of daddy ball. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, I'm a, I'm a big believer with my boys. I always preach to the boys. Nowadays, they have so many great resources, right? I can go on YouTube and watch MIA games until I'm blue in the face. Yeah. It's awesome. Complete games. And I always encourage my boys, you need to be watching these games. You have more resources than you know what to do with. Yep. And in the case of the officiating and the dads you're talking about, I think maybe the same applies to those dads. It's just, you, yeah. need, you need to get exposure and watch real games so you see what's really going on. You know, and that was the one thing when I coached back in Maryland. Um, you know, there's a good chance guys on the sideline and the moms, you know, played the props. They know the game. Yep. And I was more inclined when I'm running down the field and I have a parent yell something at me in Maryland that I did something wrong. They could have been right. A lot of chances they were right. I missed something. And I would listen to them. Um, but the parents were never belligerent. You know, because... Right. One, the refs up there, they, they tee you off quicker than hell. You start to run your mouth. Now, coaches were another thing. I mean, coaches were constantly at you, at you, at you, at you, at you, at you, at you. I remember doing a BL Calvert Hall game. You know, so I got Bob Shriver on the sideline, you know, the god of lacrosse in Maryland. And he's riding me like cheap mule. Well, he was doing it because I was a younger guy. Right. And he was trying to work me. Right. And I was told beforehand, look, Karate, this guy's going to try to work your ass. Don't listen to him. Be polite. Yes, sir, Mr. Shriver. No, sir, Mr. Shriver. Thank you. I'll take it into consideration. He goes, but don't let him get to you. Which I did, you know. I, generally, I wouldn't hear what they were saying. I just, you know, put the flaps over my ears and, and just keep going. Um, you know, down here's another story when you, you get, you know, some of the parents, they come out with stuff, especially with the, you know, yelling at their kids to hit people. You know, that's one thing you run into down here. Well, again, you didn't come to Maryland. We didn't play up there to hit people. It was a part of the game, yes. And if you got hit, you got hit because it was your own fault for the most part. Right. Um, down here, you get parents yelling to, 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 you know, for their kids to hit somebody, and sometimes the kids will listen to them. Right. You know, and a lot of times I try to talk the kids off the cliff and say, hey, if, you know, I hear your mother yelling at you, and if you do it, I'm going to throw you out of the game. We're going to get a three-minute non-releasable, so don't listen to your parents. Do what you're supposed to do. Do the right thing. And um, which is something else. Again, in Maryland, you could talk to kids. Down here, I run to some coaches, you know, especially when I'm coaching these younger, or fishing these younger guys, and I'm trying to help a kid out. And I say, you know, hey, number four, number four, lay off this, lay off the arm, get more glove. And the coach is going, don't tell him to do that. I want the slash. Like, you know, come on, man. 
Yeah, really? The trophy's not that big. Dude. He's, he's a freaking <laughs> fifth grader, for God's sakes. Well, the best thing that always got me, you know, I, I had a couple of these. When I get the coach, he says to me, you know, you know, have you ever played lacrosse before? And, of course, I was like, oh, well, you know, I've dabbled in a little bit. You know, oh, well, you know, um, you know, I just, it would behoove you to, you know, to watch more games and learn about the game. I said, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to learn about it. You know, I said to him, well, I said, so obviously you're doing such a great job. Where did you play before? Where did you play college lacrosse? You know, well, I played club lacrosse at the University of Texas. Yeah, I played a little club lacrosse, or a little college lacrosse too. Oh, really? Where'd you play? I played at a place called University of Maryland. So I don't want to hear anything else out of you. One more time, you get a bench penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see, um, and I'm, I agree with you, I've seen that, that lower rung of officials. Mm -hmm. I don't know if someone's consciously, you know, taking those folks over who haven't performed over long periods of time and, and, and gotten rid of them or just do attrition, they've left. But I have seen that lower rung of official leaving. Yeah. yeah. Do you see do you see young officials, competent folks filling in? Yep. Okay. Yep, we're starting to see younger younger guys. We got one guy, young guy in particular, that was a kid with him about his long hair. Um, I've done some varsity games with him. And he's, he's probably 24, 25 years old. Are they holding up? Yeah. And what I mean, and you know what I mean, right? I mean, whether it's the, the coaches or the parents who don't know anything or the, or the boys nowadays, are, are they holding up? Yeah. What, what usually happens with that is they'll be you know, teamed up with some older guys, a few older guys. And if we see somebody starting to get on them, we'll then go to the coach and say, hey, you know, what's the problem? What do you got? And they'll start on them and I'll say, okay, will you talk to me about it? If you have an issue and I'll talk to them about it. And see what's going on, see what his point of view is, and, and try to lead interference right. so they don't get uh, they don't get beat up too okay. bad. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I've, I've been that young guy. I know how it is to get you know, you know, yeah. there, there's no Bob Schreiber down here going to be yelling at me from Boyd Latin, but um, you know, for the most part, the younger guys they keep their cool and they do okay. You know, I think uh, the training they get and they're confident in what they're doing, and a lot of them play college lacrosse and. You know, may have a bit more experience than what these other guys have. And I think you find also it's more on D2 level as opposed to D1. Your D1 coaches are all ex-college yep. players around here nowadays. Yep. Um, and for the most part, they're pretty pretty even keeled. You know, unless you do something really bad, then they're going to let you know about it. But usually they let you know in between quarters and not be riding your butt during the game, you know, right. during the play. Right. You know. Um, so, yeah, getting back to the, the YouTube thing, watching watching games, that's one thing I want to you know, bring up a difference between I found it Episcopal as opposed to when I played, you know, we were all, we all want to play college lacrosse. It was all ingrained in our heads, try to play college lacrosse, hopefully get a little bit of money, and, you know, help your parents out. And you don't have to end up going to community college for two years and then commute to the local college. Hopefully you go live to college. Um, you know, when we had rainy days at Episcopal, I would, I'd put up, uh, um, you know, MIA games and, and have them watch. Okay, watch these games, and I would go through things and explain stuff to them and all. I had some kids were interested, and other kids were yawning and falling asleep, couldn't really care. But the thing was, those kids weren't worried about going to play college lacrosse. Right. Yeah, they're going to the University of Texas like their mom and dad did. Right. Um, they're probably going to have a trust fund. they got a trust fund set up. You know, they don't need to worry about paying for anything in life. You know, so their motivation to go play is a lot different. And we would see that. We'd have kids our senior year who would quit playing. You know, they played for three years. Senior, well, I don't want to play. You know, 
blah, blah, blah. I had it happen my, my second year at Episcopal. We could have had a smoking team. I had four starters decide they wanted, one wanted to play golf. The other three just didn't feel like playing. Well, Coach, I'm not going to play in college, so what do I care? Whereas, you know, growing up, and I'm sure it's probably still the same way back home, you know, you're, you know, you're busting your hump. You're hoping, uh, you know, you may not get that uh, a D1 scholarship, but maybe you get some help to a D, D2 school, right? you know, um, or, you know, to a D3 school. There's a lot of D3 opportunities these days. But it's funny, though, with the, With kids down here playing club ball, you know, there's so many club teams anymore, and every kid thinks because I play club ball and I'm paying a thousand dollars to play, I'm gonna go play college lacrosse. I should get a college lacrosse opportunity, you know, and not the case. You know, their parents are paying all that money, and we talk about kids getting cut. You know, well, you got these club teams, a lot of them, who really, it's nice that they have teams and the kids can play in the summertime and try to get better. But a lot of these kids have absolutely no chance in hell right. of playing college lacrosse. And but they, they get fed a line of crap. You know, we're gonna go to Maryland and play, we're gonna go here and go there, and your opportunity to get seen by these coaches and, and all this stuff. And uh, you know, it's it's really gets pushed on these kids. They don't understand that, you know, out of all the college lacrosse players or all the high school lacrosse players in the country, maybe four and a half percent, five percent will play some form of college lacrosse, you know, either D one, D two, D three or uh, or whatever, and that opportunity in there. And, and it's funny, I had more than one parent think because, you know, they were playing club lacrosse for me, that their son, you know, he should be playing college ball. And I had one mother, I want, you know, leave names uh, out of this, you know, told me that her son wanted to play at Syracuse. I said, well, that's great, you know. This kid had absolutely no chance in the world playing Syracuse. My Labrador Retriever had a better chance of playing lacrosse at Syracuse. And she insisted because her kid was playing club lacrosse and traveling to Maryland to play. And the kid was good. You know, he's a good player, but he wasn't a Syracuse lacrosse player. She insisted, you know, she you know, gave me the old, do you know Coach Desco? I'm like, yeah, I know Coach Desco. You know, I've, I've talked to him in the past, and he would know who I am. Well, could you call him up and, and let him know about my son? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tell her, you know, well, you know, maybe you ought to aim just a little bit lower, maybe a mid-level D3 school. Yeah, which are great schools. Yep. You know, a lot of great D three schools have lacrosse, and and she was just insistent that her son was, you know, should be playing up there. And I said, well, I said, I give you my honest opinion. Your son probably could play lacrosse at Syracuse, but it's going to be on a club team, maybe, not on a D one team. And well, what am I spending all this money for? Paying for him to play club lacrosse? I'm like, that's a decision your family needs to make. Yep. Because I'm telling you, out of all the kids on this team. We're going to have a few play college lacrosse. Maybe one play D1. A couple are going to play D3. But other than that, majority aren't going to play. Because yep. it's just, they're not good enough. To, I said, for you know, your son who goes home after practice, starts playing Xbox, doesn't go out on weekends and play, doesn't play in the summertime except comes out to practice, does that. I said, back in Maryland? In the middle of winter time, when it's freezing cold outside, that kid's outside hitting the wall. Yeah. I said, you know, I used to shovel snow on our basketball court to get out there and hit my, do my wall ball, or I went up to the school every single day. After football practice, I came home, I hit that wall 
thousand times. I said, that's what you're competing against. I said, so your son's got in here living life at rally, you know, doesn't really have to worry about school because he's getting that nice big trust fund and all, but his dream is to go play at Syracuse. There's a kid who's a little bit more hungry than your kid who's going to, who's going to try to play at Syracuse, but he's not going to be good enough. He's going to go to Hofstra, you know, and not as good a school as Syracuse, you know, even though it's a D1 school, you know, or, or somewhere like that. But he's still going to play D1, and your son's not. <laughs> no matter if you you spend you know $5,000 a year, he's not playing D1. Can't buy your way out of Can't buy your way <laughs> Not going to happen. All right, two, man, two hours. That was a good one. So, Is, is there anything that we missed? Uh, no, we talked about a lot. I think uh, that's good talking about things, you know, in, in, in lacrosse here in Houston. Hopefully it, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hearing a few things what's going on on the youth side of things. Hopefully we can get it resolved because high school is nothing without a good solid youth program. Um, yeah, I haven't heard anything positive come out of Kia Trialway recently. Yeah, I, I don't know what's what's going on, but just look in and, and you see something's going on because I, I think on a high school level we're starting to see a little bit of a decrease in Last couple of years of quality of play. Hopefully, we get scored away. Um, you know, get our youth program back up and running where they should be. Maybe it's just my misconception, but you know, I just my observations looking at things. It um, there's more of a spread between the, the the good teams and the not so good teams. You know, before there used to be more in betweeners, yeah. and now we're starting to get a little bit a bit of separation out of it. Well, you see that on on individual teams as well. Mike Staub and I were talking earlier today, and he, he posed the question to me. He goes, when was the last time you scouted somebody's second midline? And I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know when I've scouted someone's second yeah. midline, right? So, you, you're, you know, that disparity even with on the teams yeah. has, has, has gotten greater, yeah. too. It goes back to depth. Yeah. You know, getting that, getting that depth. But all starts with the little kids, teaching them the right way and, you know, and, and you know, getting them to like the game. Want to go out there and play, and you know I was fortunate, you know, with our Hornets teams. I had more than one kid who started as a baseball player. We had one kid in particular uh, whose father played college lacrosse on the Hornets, and I remember his mom bringing him out there and wanting him to play. And his father got, well, you know, he's, he plays baseball too. And I'm like, hey, you know what? And I said, bring him out as much as you can, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And well, he ended up uh, quitting baseball. He played baseball through the season because I insisted he play because he told me, Coach, I want to quit and just play lacrosse. I said, no, no, you signed up, you finish it. Next year, you and your family, that's your choice. And he quit. And he ended up, uh, you know, playing lacrosse and, and sticking with it because he liked it so much. And I've had more than one baseball player, and I got one now who's actually going to Furman, who I, one of the last kids I coached at the Hornets. Who is he? Uh, Jacob Mengelson. All right. You know, we went to Kincaid, and now he's going to go play at Furman. So, I mean, he was a, a I think I player. played with him this summer in box. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a Woodlands kid who was at Furman. I think he just graduated. That's yeah. Gus Pizanon. Gus. Yeah. Yeah, he ran me over. Like, I yeah, didn't Gus get, a big boy. I didn't even get stuck in his wheel well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a horse. I, got to, you know, I watched him play the last two years when, you know, when, when Ryan VMI played them. And, yeah, he's a, he's a big boy. He's a big guy. Yeah. yeah I, I had the... You're a little older too. Yeah, yeah. Guys are I'm having a hard time getting home. that part in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Gus flattened me, man. Goodness gracious. So, 
So yeah, and that's that's another good thing. I've seen you know coaching down here, seeing a number of kids that um, you know from the Hornets and then in high school and especially on the club side, seeing guys go play college ball. I've probably got about sixteen or seventeen kids you know, I've I've been able to coach one time or another who are playing you know D one or D D two lacrosse. Awesome. You know that, that's good to see. Yeah, kids who can actually uh, who actually make it. Yeah, yeah. Especially one in particular who uh, I used to feed all the time here, but now he's gone. <laughs> Living it up now in Huntsville, man. So, so yep. So now, good talk. Yeah, it was awesome. I appreciate it.